Um, just to add a couple points, uh, CE units are available, as you probably know, so make sure you sign in and sign out, you know, per the requirements. Do that. And um, my talks and meditations will be recorded. They're freely available on dharmaseed.org. You can go to my teacher page there, dharmaseed.org, and they should be available through Jesse within a week or so. One thing to be aware of is that the recording is all-inclusive, so what you say in the microphone gets recorded and doesn't get uh, filtered out. Right, Jesse? We don't edit those out. Yeah. Um, So I want you to know that, and if you are comfortable with your voice being recorded and the point you're raising shared with others, great. And if not, feel free to come up to me at the break or uh, immediately after the workshop, uh, although they will try to get me out of here pretty briskly um, because they know my bad habits of hanging out and talking with people at length after workshops while others are trying to straighten up the room. So anyway, uh, feel, but feel free to come up to me directly. Last, uh, with regard to the email list, uh, I'll happily send you these slides, uh, PDF of the slides, which you're welcome to use in any which way you want. Adapt them, you know, use parts or not, what have you. Uh, but to send you the slides, I need your email address, which I'll never share with anyone who doesn't work for me. And... Um, Unless you say just slides, you'll be subscribed to my free weekly newsletter, Just One Thing. You may already get it. It goes to 150,000 people each week. It's a really short, sweet description of practice. Uh, I forget what it is this week. It might be something like lighten up or see beings, not bodies. But anyway, uh, and if you ever want to unsubscribe, you can always do that quickly. I don't like receiving things I don't want, so I don't want to send things that people don't want. And if you want the slides, I need your email address. Please print neatly. Okay, we'll take a break in the morning. We'll take a break in the afternoon. We'll take a lunch break around uh, 12.30. Uh, I'll end very, very close to 4.30 in the afternoon. Uh, I really encourage you to stay with it. In terms of a word or two about myself, I started meditating in 1974. I was a confused, sentimental normal 21-year-old, and, um, you know, I didn't quite know what I was doing, but I knew immediately there was something real and valuable and true about it, and that kind of set me on my way. So I would think of myself as someone with a deep interest in practice, and that's going to be the fundamental emphasis today. So in terms of the material, uh, I'm going to try to present what I think is, uh, think about as some of the deepest, coolest material of the Buddha, the hardcore stuff, informed by what we're learning about the body, especially its nervous system and brain, and how the body is involved in continually making, hearing, seeing, suffering, enjoying, and awakening. Toward the end of this workshop, we will explore the tricky and sometimes controversial topic of, well, thanks about ordinary reality, and is that all there is? And was the Buddha referring to something beyond ordinary reality when he spoke of what could be translated as the unconditioned, the deathless, the farthest shore, the unborn, unaging, unaging, unailing, undying? What was he talking about? Is that 
in the ultimate point an extraordinary experience within ordinary reality or in addition to it being an extraordinary experience in ordinary reality is there some intimation of or permeability with something transcendental something meaningfully distinct from ordinary reality do 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 very cool stuff. So uh, my intent today is to just go for it, uh, move along fairly rapidly. This material, you know, I've been engaged with it for over 40 years. Uh, I hope I'll have a chance to engage it for another 40. Given my natural lifespan, that may not happen, but why not go for it, right? Um, and it's the kind of stuff you can come back to, you will come back to again and again and again. That said... I'm going to try to move through some key points of access into this really deep territory, uh, informed by science. So we'll do some experiential things, uh, guided meditations mainly, some internal practice mainly. Uh, we'll also have discussion, as with anything, and as the Buddha himself said in Pali, Ehi Pasiko, see for yourself. Come and see for yourself what seems useful and true over time. Come and see for yourself. And, uh, oh God, that's pretty straightforward. Okay. My style will be to roll forward, uh, periodically slow down for discussion. If I say something along the way that you just don't hear, or immediately doesn't make any sense at all, maybe it doesn't, um, you know, pop your hand up, but otherwise I'll just kind of have more specific times where we can talk. All right? Okay, great. Um, I'd like to move first through some foundations material. And I'll do this fairly briskly. Uh, We'll be exploring experiences. Experiences of steadiness, wholeness, nowness, and what I call wholeness. Steadiness is the capacity to remain present and mindful, undistracted, and increasingly concentrated. Wholeness is a sense of being whole as a being. Nothing left out. All the rooms in the mansion of the, of the being. Accessible. And in particular, the sense of wholeness means a sense of the stream of consciousness as a whole. I'll use the word mind, by which I mean vastly more than intellect. I mean the totality of our experience. The totality of sensing, feeling, emoting, wanting, enjoying, loving, hating, and so forth. Okay? So wholeness means being, you know, just taking what's always the case and immediately evident, mind as a whole, in an increasingly undivided way. Nowness is about abiding in a sustained way right at the front edge of now. Moving as close to the emergent moment of now as it disappears beneath our feet continuously as a form of practice. Allness is my word for um, a recognition that becomes increasingly felt. The felt recognition that this moment of experience, or more exactly this moment of personing, of being a body-mind process in this moment, is actually like a local wave in a vast sea of causes. It's a local ripple in the tapestry of reality. 
the rippling, the eddying of our own person process is uh, actual, it exists, and it's differentiated from the rippling of other person processes in the ocean of reality, while at the same time being a local expression of all that is, through you, as you, in you, now. Very good. You know that what the Dalai Lama said to the hot dog vendor? Please make me one with everything. You know. Okay. So, allness. And then, uh, let's see, I've, I won't say necessarily we'll be exploring experiences of, the, you could say fifth thing here, timelessness. Uh, but that really is, uh, it will be our final kind of topic as we engage uh, what the Buddha called as the unconditioned. By the way, these four uh, experiences are practices. They're ways of being. What we practice grows. And as it grows, it's easier to practice in a wonderful upward spiral. And um, those are four of the seven uh, elements of the book I'm finished writing called Neurodharma, Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. And they are, uh, for me, accessible to all of us and things that we can develop and cultivate uh, over time and open into, open into as already there for us. Those seven are steadiness, as it has here, warm-heartedness, second, fullness, sense of equanimity, you know, resilient well-being, fullness, and then, as you see here, wholeness, nowness, and allness, and as I alluded to, timelessness. I think those seven are fundamental steps of practice that you find in all the roots, in all the traditions, up the mountain of awakening. They're either different roots, but as they converge on the summit, people who walk those paths look increasingly alike. And I think on all of the roots up the mountain of awakening, including secular ones, secular ones, uh, we find these same seven steps. Steadying the mind, warming the heart, resting in fullness, being wholeness, receiving nowness, opening into allness, and finding timelessness. So, that's good territory. Okay? So, found it so far so okay? So far so comprehensible? I guess something? Okay. Uh, fundamental frame here, um, I find this is a framework that we return to many times. Of all the ways to practice, I think they tend to fall into three groups. First is most fundamental, we simply be with what's there. We try to be with what's there skillfully, disidentifying from it, stepping back from it, uh, sensing down to what's under the surface. Uh, we be with what's there, hopefully with other, other factors uh, that are supportive, such as compassion for ourselves, acceptance, curiosity. Uh, we try to be with what's there without being swept away by it, having some stability of self-regulation. In the process of being with what's there, including something really sad or hurtful or painful uh, or addictive, uh, it may well change. But we're not di- directly trying to nudge it inside our own mind. That's the primary practice. Uh, it's our last resort. It's our first resort. It's often all we can do. And as practice matures, that's really increasingly where people hang out. And it's not the only way to practice. 
there's also working with the mind, not just being with the mind. And working with the mind is two aspects. Uh, we let go of, or we prevent, or we decrease uh, that which is harmful and painful for ourselves and others. We let go of tension in the body. We vent feelings. We release beliefs that make us nutty. Uh, we let go of unwholesome desires. There's a place for that. And we let in. We cultivate. We grow. We try to learn from our experiences. Um, we try to develop uh, mindfulness and compassion and wisdom and virtue. Uh, we try to become stronger, wiser, happier, a little, little wiser and happier at the end of the week than when the week started, if at all possible. So all three work together uh, to be able to simply be with our experience. Very often we need to cultivate resources inside so we can tolerate our own pain. Uh, and as we work with the mind, we be with the results. Mindfulness is to be present in all three forms of practice. And um, it's really important not to leave out the third, which is often the forget, forgotten stepchild, whether it's in formal psychotherapy or coaching or in spiritual trainings or mindfulness trainings in a secular way. We tend to leave out uh, attention to what is the lasting value of the experiences we're having. And in particular, we tend to leave out how we can be active agents in our own growth process. Any kind of lasting change for the better must involve the body changing in some way, notably its nervous system, uh, in terms of ordinary reality. And in the famous saying, uh, neurons that fire together, wire together. So we have this two-stage process of growing and learning in which first we experience whatever we want to grow. A moment of calming, a moment of worth, a feeling of wholeness, a feeling of allness. How cool is that, right? A feeling of it, we must experience what we want to grow, represented by a particular pattern of activation in the nervous system. And then, if that experience is to have any value beyond the moment, if we are to, to cultivate anything that is stable inside us, if we are to acquire trait mindfulness, trait compassion, trait happiness, trait grit, trait gratitude, if we are to acquire any of those traits, if we're to develop so that we carry the good with us wherever we go, no matter what our circumstances are, well, we must turn that experience into some kind of lasting physical change of neural structure and function. That's the second necessary step of learning in the broadest sense. Experiencing does not equal learning. Really important. The process of learning is mostly enjoyable. Right? We stay with it. So when we're having a beneficial experience, we keep it going for a breath or longer. Kind of stay with it gently, not out of craving uh, or clinging to it, but out of wisdom and kindness for ourselves and a kind of gentle encouraging of what's beneficial to stick around. We stay with it for a breath or two or longer rather than changing the channel quickly. We also feel it in the body. The more embodied, the more emotional, the more somatic, the richer an experience is, the more traces it's going to tend to leave behind. And it's very skillful in terms of the neural machinery to focus on what's rewarding about an experience. 
unbeneficial experience, what's enjoyable or meaningful about it. Because as we highlight the reward value of an experience, that increases activity of dopamine and norepinephrine in the brain to neurotransmitter systems. And as their activity increases, the experiences at the time are flagged for prioritization as they get consolidated into long-term storage. There's more to it than that. I've written a lot about it, most of which is freely offered. Uh, I've taught a lot about it as well. Um, any one of those three things I just mentioned uh, can be done. The more, the better. And the more episodes of learning, the better. Uh, and as I said, just to repeat, stay with it for a breath or longer. Feel it in the body. Focus on what feels good about it. And that's going to tend to steepen your growth curve, your healing curve, your development curve, your cultivation, bhavana, curve as you move through your day. Okay. With regard to the sunlight that's blasting some people over there, I don't think it's solvable other than by moving. So feel free to move if you want or just work on your suntan, you know. Okay. Uh, as the Buddha taught uh, from the Dhammapada a long time ago, uh, and when I say the Buddha said or the Buddha taught, that's kind of a convention. Uh, it would be more accurate to, to frame it as, it is said that the Buddha said, because the teachings, there was very, very little uh, writing uh, in the time of the Buddha, and um, the teachings were handed down orally for hundreds of years uh, before a, a written record survived several, beginning several centuries after the Buddha had passed away. So... That's the convention. That said, I think of it as the Buddhist dream that originated with one remarkable person. Uh, and um, so in that context, think not lightly of good, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. Enormously hopeful. Whatever's happened in the past is past. Even as the present emerges, it is what it is. The future, in the proverb, is the undiscovered country. That's where there's great opportunity to grow a little, to learn a little, to let go a little every day and to help ourselves in that way. No one can defeat us inside the temple of our own mind. And no one can do the work there except us, which gives it truth and traction. And as Lao Tzu, it is said that Lao Tzu said, um, if we keep a green bird, pardon me, if we keep a green bough in our heart, in other words, as we cultivate the wholesome inside, that tends to create positive interactions with others. Singing birds in the form of other people and even job opportunities or all kinds of other things uh, come to us as we cultivate the good inside ourselves. It's imperfect. It's not a guarantee of good treatment. Um, by the world, but it's our best odd strategy in this um, amazing opportunity of a human life to help ourselves develop uh, in, in the time that's given to us here. Okay, so that's foundational. Any comments or questions about that foundational chunk? Good. Okay. All right. Steadying the mind. 
So here's where I'd like to move into an experiential practice, and um, which will also illustrate some of what I've said about changing the brain for the better. Uh, so how many of you do something contemplative, which could include prayer, uh, or something like paying attention to the sensations of breathing? A minute or more a month. A minute a month. Okay, we're all in the meditator club. Yay. All right, we'll leave it at that. Uh, now, here we're going to go a little more deeply um, and uh, draw on various factors that support steadiness of mind. Uh, without steadiness of mind, we don't got nothing. I think William James put it a long time ago, the godfather kind of of American psychology, the education of attention <clears throat> would be the education par excellence. Because without being able to regulate our attention, we can't regulate ourselves or be of much good to anyone else. And from the standpoint of neurons that fire together, wire together, what is described more technically as experience-dependent neuroplasticity, the front end of the neuroplastic process is attention, what we rest attention on. Attention is like a vacuum cleaner with a spotlight. It illuminates what it rests upon while sucking it into us. Privileged for negative material due to the brain's negativity bias, which makes it like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. Irritation, stress, hurt, resentment, self-criticism, self-worth, others are nice, gratitude, relief, right? That's another reason why it's really important to help ourselves to internalize and to receive in a vulnerable, intimate way into ourselves those moments, um, those experiences that are beneficial. Okay. So in terms of getting regulation over that vacuum cleaner and steadiness of mind, um, there are some basic foundational supports for meditation. Uh, there, there might be others than these. This is pretty fundamental. Helps to kind of be there for yourself. You, we meditate um, out of goodwill for ourselves. Kind of a simple, warm-hearted sense. Uh, posture that's comfortable and alert. You know, it kind of helps to sit up straighter. If you want to lie down, it's fine. If you want to walk or stand, it's fine. Just be, you know, attentive to other people. Uh, in the present, if we're lost in thought, that's not meditation in that moment. Uh, if we're task-oriented, that's not meditation in the moment. Um, if we're in the present, as distracting thoughts come and go, or as kind of a little bit of planning comes and goes, that's different. I think Pema Chodron said something close to, you are the sky. Everything else is just the weather. Right? So we stay present as the sky in the moment. It's useful to have a stable object of attention so that by contrast we can notice when we're lost. Classic stable object is the sensation of breathing or sensations really, the feeling of breathing. Um, you can take them at your upper lip and around the nose. You might get a sense of the internal sensations of breathing. Uh, I think later on when we get to wholeness, I'll talk about experiencing breathing as the whole body, uh, which supports the sense of wholeness. Uh, if you 
don't want to use the breath as an object, which is, uh, for some people, especially if there's a trauma history, uh, attention to breathing is, is not appropriate. It's disturbing, actually. So feel free to use other objects of attention, such as sensations elsewhere, or a word such as peace, or om, or shanti, um, shalom, or maybe a, just a feeling, a feeling of kind of calming. Take the sense of calming as your object of attention. Okay? And on the whole, as we do this, in a way that needs to be gentle and not caught up in tense striving, there's a encouraging and an easing into the mind coming to rest. Who are you when you're not doing you? Right? When you're fabricating and constructing as little as possible. Okay, so you want to give it a whirl? I'll walk us through five factors and then uh, give you a little challenge at the end to pick some object of attention, such as sensations of breathing, and stay present with that object of attention, experiencing it continuously for five minutes. That's actually challenging. And if your mind wanders at all, it's perfectly normal. Uh, This is practice. This is training. We get better at things by practicing them. All right, so just kind of letting yourself land here. Finding a posture that is comfortable and alert. Finding an object of meditation, I'll refer to the sensations of breathing. As we practice, two things are occurring. First, there is the practice itself, whatever it is. And then second, there is awareness of the results. And sometimes when we practice with something, we try to do something with our mind, uh, we get the result. Sometimes we don't. And sometimes we become aware of other factors in the mind that are getting in the way, let's say. And all that's grist for the mill. All that's fine. It's really okay. So the overall aim here is sustained present moment awareness, sustained steadiness of mind, I'll offer five suggestions to support this steadiness. The first of which is to establish the intention in yourself for steadiness of mind. And this intention can be both 
top down in which essentially you give yourself an instruction or there's a feeling of commitment, um, resolve that's light and not tense or oppressive. So establishing a top-down intention while also giving yourself over to intention from the bottom up. Getting a feeling of what it would be like to be steadily present and, and giving yourself over to that way of being as a very embodied form of intention. second suggestion is to ease your body and mind. Letting the body become increasingly tranquil. Letting go of tension in it. Perhaps deliberately relaxing different parts of it. Jaws eyes, tongue, belly, floor of the pelvis, legs and feet and hands. The mind as well, settling down and becoming more tranquil. Not resisting anything, simply disengaging from worries or plans. Letting go of anxiety, preoccupation. Body and mind coming to rest.
The third suggestion is to bring in a sense of warm-heartedness along with the intention to steady the mind and an easing in the body and mind. Just touching lightly, opening to, inviting feelings of warm-heartedness. Friendliness toward others. Receiving, caring, and kindness. Disengaging from any complex stories or memories. Simply focusing on the feeling of warm-heartedness. Perhaps with a sense of breathing in and out of the area of the heart. The fourth suggestion is to help yourself feel as safe as you reasonably can here and now. This is the sense of letting go of unnecessary worry or anxiety. Letting go of defending or guarding. It's recognizing that now and now you're basically all right. The body's okay now. Enough air to breathe. Heart is still beating. Now. See what it's like to soften, to feel undefended. Letting in whatever is true about the protections in this setting, the safety of this setting.
Noticing if it's scary to feel safer. Recognizing that you can still be strong and alert and aware. While feeling as safe as you actually are now. And the fifth and final suggestion is to open to authentic positive emotions such as gratitude or simple well-being, perhaps happiness. It's okay to think about something that brings a little smile. as a factor of steadiness of mind. Positive emotion, including a simple sense of contentment in the moment, supports steadiness of mind. Even relatively intense feelings of joy or bliss are well-known factors of steadiness of mind. This is not about straining or faking anything around. Positive emotion might well be a depressed mood or sorrow, or concern. And also, amidst that, can be gratitude. Can be a memory of beauty, a feeling of delight, sense of appreciation. An awareness of these emotionally positive experiences helps to steady the mind.
And then on the basis of whatever steadiness of mind you've cultivated here, see if you can remain aware of, in touch with, your object of attention for five minutes in a row. If you can become deeply absorbed in it, devoted to this object, aware of other things passing through consciousness perhaps, but not following after them, staying with, in an absorbed and concentrated way, your object of attention, as the sensations of breathing, applying attention to the beginning of an inhalation and sustaining attention to it, then applying attention to the beginning of an exhalation and sustaining attention to it. doing similar things with other objects of attention for the next five minutes.
that was five minutes. As you come back into the room, you can let yourself continue to be meditative. You can see what it's like to sustain awareness of breathing with the eyes open. Do you have a sense of being here, stably, even as we engage ideas and uh, activities? And I suggest that at this point, uh, we take a 15-minute break. Uh, It'll give us a kind of transition to come back from into further discussion. And during the break, it's up to you. You can continue to meditate here or stay in silence or go get a cookie. (laughs) So please come back at, um, by that clock, 6, 20 after. We'll start again at 20 after. See you then.
Okay. Um, anyone care to share their experience uh, during that experiment, as it were, in the laboratory of your own mind? Those five factors, uh, and then um, focusing on one thing for five minutes in a row. Any comments on what happened for you? Has the microphone daunted you? That the thing I said about, you know, it's going out into the interwebs? Yeah. Um, we'll figure this out. Okay, good. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, I, when we got... Mic's on, right? I think so. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yep. When we got to sort of the safer part, I started seeing colors. Oh, okay. Like some were really bright. Yeah. And then some started were sort of fading, but it was really kind of a neat experience. Oh, that's great. Good. Were you able to actually feel safer? That might be the hardest one. Because, as I said, it can be scary to feel safer. Yeah. We get anxious about not being anxious because that's when we might lower our guard. No, I was... I You're okay so. with that? Yeah. yeah, that's great. Good. Great, thanks. Anybody else? Or a question. A question about the basics of meditation. How about over here? Over here? Hello? There we go. Right. Oh, okay, good. Perfect. Got it. Um, I have a question regarding um, the, the focus of the eyes. I've been doing brain spotting on my, mm-hmm. my, my clients, and I've noticed when I meditate now, when my eyes are in a certain spot, I'm deeper. Mm. And when they're off, I'm thinking of a, yeah. a memory or I'm thinking of the future. But when I'm kind of down and almost cross-eyed, mm. I feel like I'm somewhere deeper. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there's ever been any studies done on what part of the brain we're accessing when our eyes are mm-hmm. in meditation. It's a great, interesting question. Um, first, I'm not aware of a specific study. Second, uh, the real test as I can sense that you know already, is in our own experience, pragmatically. And also recognizing individual differences. And also knowing that a lot of practices, uh, including ancient practices, uh, have been developed uh, through trial and error over time, and they have a lot of validity and effectiveness, even if there's no study for them. Now, by contrast, just so you know as context, uh, it's widely estimated by the American Medical Association that roughly half of all procedures that are done in healthcare settings by doctors, nurses, and other providers have not one single study supporting them. It doesn't mean they're bad. It just means that I think it's important to uh, have standards of evidence in context. And if a person is going to try some interesting technique of locating their gaze in one place or another to kind of see what happens, the probable side effects of that are pretty minimal. Unlike, let's say, taking a new medication for an off-label purpose. So the standard of evidence really ought to be higher. So it's, it's okay that there aren't yet studies for it. I think it's really interesting. The, the eyes, as you probably know, are very directly connected into the brain through the whole optic nerve process. And it could well be 
that through shifting gaze in one direction or another, we're tending to engage other things in the brain. Um, the brain as a whole is always working together. So if I speak of or others speak of circuitry or regions that are doing a thing, you know, that's important. It's like there's a whole symphony. And yeah, we can turn up the volume on the, on the woodwinds because we like the sound of the flutes. Uh, but it's the whole symphony of the brain, the whole body-mind process, really, that's working together. So I'll say that. Great. Thank you. Maybe one more person. Any question even about how to meditate right there or anything else? Here we go. Great. I have a question regarding intention. Yeah. And I've had uh, some confusion around where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes I find that uh, my, my normal state of mind is somewhat neutral. And so to to find where intention comes from is kind of a puzzling sort of a situation for me. It, I, I tend to um, not trust if it comes from my mind uh, because it, it uh, does, the mind's uh, thoughts does dif- funny things, you know. So, uh, so I'm, I'm interested in hearing more about where to find intention uh, you say top down, bottom up. It seems like top down comes from the brain. Bottom up comes more from a um, a whole place, body, mind sort of location. So, I'd like to okay. hear more from you about what intention is and where does it come from. Sure, great. So, there's a lot in your question. So, I'm going to use it to kind of unpack and highlight a couple key themes here, a couple key points. So, it's great. Um, intentions first uh, and related things like values purposes, aims uh, are central to Buddhism in the classic list of the Eightfold Path wise intention comes second the intention for non-harming the intention for non-ill will and the intention to be free in relationship to pleasures. Those are intentions. Uh, In the field of psychology and mental health, motivation and what our true motivations are is really central. So it's it's an important topic, really, really central. Implicit, built in to all kinds of action is an intention. You know, the reaching for the cup is the intention to lift it, not spill it, get it to the mouth. So we can find intention implicit in a, in a lot of things. If we're to be deliberate and explicit about intention, um, as I said, loosely, there are two kinds of ways to do that. One way is to do it in with the feeling of, or the sense of giving oneself an instruction. Watch out. Be cool. Um, I would roll home, especially when our kids were young, drive home from work, long day, kind of stressed, and I would deliberately sit in the car for a few extra minutes or seconds just to kind of get my head together before I walked in the house and it was showtime, you know, and it would be like, don't be a jerk, Dad, you know. Uh, That's the kind of intention. Uh, So we give it to ourselves as an instruction. We're doing, you know, exercise. You know, for me, it's 30 minutes on the treadmill. I hit that 20-minute mark. I'm tired. Keep going. You know, setting an intention. There's a place for that. The location, this is where it gets interesting, 
of the primary causes of an experience can be talked about. The experiences don't have locations. The causes of experiences have locations. So the location of the cause of an experience of, you know, don't be a bad dad or keep exercising might originate out in the culture partially. You read a book, says, do this, it'll help, great, fine. Causes are distributed outside the body as well. That said, as we get more and more in the body, the influence of the causes there really increases. And the uh, most immediate biological, physical, objective basis for the experience and the impact of the experience of a top-down construction is primarily right behind the forehead. And you see the way I'm trying to carefully talk about this. I'm not trying to um, elevate the brain. I'm locating the brain in a larger network of dependent origination of causes. Uh, That said, I'm also trying to, uh, as a psychologist grounded in science and biology and neurobiology, um, acknowledge the fact that whether it's a human or a cat or a squirrel, you know, the primary local collection of causes of the hearing, the seeing, the wanting, the remembering, the imagining of the person or the cat or the squirrel resides inside the brain primarily. So now another form of intention, which I think is actually more important than top down uh, and has been kind of pushed aside through history, which I think has been constructed a lot by men and top down hierarchical patriarchal structures um, a bottom-up form of intention has been kind of sidelined, and I think it's really important to foreground, as many people are doing. This is the intention that feels more embodied, more wholehearted, uh, more surrendered to the good that is already present, rather than dualistically located elsewhere. And we are carried along by that river of that feeling of steadiness, or the feeling of commitment to exercise, or the feeling of the, the, the one I am and want to be who's a patient and skillful and somewhat chilled out father, right? We give ourselves over to that. The physical primary locations of that experience and the regulation of that experience are lower down in the brain in the subcortical regions that are tracking um, that which is pleasurable uh, and uh, relevant, as well as even lower parts of the subcortex that are tracking uh, the sense of something uh, being liked and wanting to do it in the basal ganglia in the subcortex, uh, as well as sensory systems in, in the brain, especially the lower and more central parts of the brain that are really tracking the felt sense of, giving or, of being that way. What's the felt sense of being steady? And we partly get that sometimes by channeling, quote-unquote, if not actually, but quote-unquote, someone who is an exemplar of being that way. I've done a lot of rock climbing, 
less lately. Uh, mainly I rock climb through watching videos and movies and imagining doing it. But anyway, I've done a lot of it. And I would watch people who are great at it, just better than me for sure. Like human geckos, you know. And then I would imagine being like that and suddenly I was a better climber. In the same way we can imagine the feeling of being someone who's steady or compassionate or loving or strong or wise and be more of that way ourselves. So that's the bottom-up thing. Now, a key point here. Um, when we speak of, let's say, heartfelt experiences of lovingness, or just think about the experience of your big toe, experiences of your toes, sensations in your toes. The primary physical basis for the experience of your toes moving is occurring inside your head. That doesn't mean that the sensation of your toes is Spock-like and heady. It's a category error to attribute to the physical location of um, the primary headquarters of the nervous system that, you know, characteristics culturally we ascribe to the head as heady, logical, dominating, um, hyper-rational, cold, things like that. So, to be clear, um, it is neural processes primarily headquartered in the brain that are the physical, natural basis for lovingness, sweetness, tenderness, cherishing, and all the rest of that. So, just because... Um, the headquarters of the nervous system and, and the primary location of our censoring app, sensory apparatus, you know, is above our shoulders, uh, doesn't mean that um, talking about the neural basis for lovingness or sweetness somehow makes it cold and mechanical. Okay, that's a lot in what you brought up there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and for me, you know, the takeaway, really, like, why, why bother? You know, the Buddha didn't need an EEG or an MRI, right? Uh, I don't think this stuff's necessary. On the other hand, we can know ourselves in two ways. Subjectively, through the first-person perspective, kind of inside out. And that's all the Buddha had. And that was plenty. And we can know ourselves through the third-person perspective, objectively, from the outside in. And the movement back and forth between those two perspectives is extremely fruitful and fertile. And to me, it actually is very consistent with the spirit of Buddhism, which is grounded in dependent origination. What are the causes and conditions? And it's very... um, this, This approach which could be called neurodharma, you know, the meeting of the first-person and third-person perspective, knowing ourselves from the inside out and from the outside in, and weaving back and forth between those perspectives and weaving them together. I think for me as well, that's very respectful of embodiment. People can be mindful of the body, and simultaneously that mindfulness of the body uh, is being made by the body. We are a body full of mind. And so to be vulnerable and humble, to really appreciate this intricate contraption 
of the body, including the 85 billion or so neurons and 100 billion other support cells inside our head, to really appreciate that and have awe and delight in it, to me, is very consistent with the spirit of Buddhism, including the modesty in that. There's a modesty in appreciating how vulnerably dependent we are on these complex operations of a very extraordinary biological thing. Yeah. And in a weird kind of way, and you see it in the writing of writings of people like Einstein, you know, the deeper you go into the natural, into science or the Big Bang, the deeper you go, <laughs> like DNA, what? You know, like synapses, what? You know, a typical synapse is firing, or neuron is firing five to 50 times a second. You know, a typical neuron makes several thousand connections with other neurons. That means inside our head right now are several hundred trillion little microprocessors, little synaptic connections between neurons that are sparkling away. You know, oozing and releasing neurotransmitter molecules, little R2-D2 molecular units are repairing them and, you know, ebbs and flows. Right now as I'm talking, quadrillions of these kinds of events are occurring inside your own head. Whoa! You know, Sherrington, Charles Sherrington, neuroscientist, called the brain the enchanted loom, continually weaving the tapestry of consciousness. So, you know, there's a definite, wow, mystery, thank you factor going on too as we really appreciate the embodied basis basis of consciousness okay as an illustration of that if it's okay i want to talk through some of briefly what could have been going on inside your body as you were doing these practices as i've said top-down intention tends to engage so i'm localizing function somewhat acknowledging that the whole the whole body embedded in nature culture and life altogether is you know operating that said it's useful to kind of localize function to some extent so we have top down intentionality mainly localized to right behind the forehead prefrontal executive regions bottom up more subcortical even brainstem oriented and then uh, relaxation starts to engage uh, the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system the natural balance too and regulator of the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system the rev up go fight or flight typically branch as well as passion exuberance delight um, healthy fieriness healthy uh, speaking truth to power sympathetic branch of the nervous system well if we want to help our mind steady it's useful to have more parasympathetic activity because when there's a lot of sympathetic arousal with stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, it's harder to steady the mind. There's a real emphasis on tranquility in the contemplative traditions for this reason. Many ways to um, ease the body and calm the mind. Uh, one nice one is to do sustained long exhalations. Because as we exhale, the parasympathetic branch is engaged. It also slows the heart rate. So if we extend the exhalations, we're naturally extending or increasing parasympathetic tone. Heartwarming. Very good. Um, uh, One reason why when we warm the heart, we steady the mind is it helps us feel settled. 
We're profoundly social, profoundly social. We're vulnerable, dependent, tribal mammals, pack animals, or pack animals. Uh, natural social structure of a human of a human being is living with roughly fifty other people for your whole life. So in this room, there would be two bands, so maybe even three. So you get to be with each other for the rest of your lives. You and you, and that's that. All right, work it out back in the Stone Age. Right? Whoa. Instantly, we're dependent upon each other. Instantly. You know, it's critically important to feel on the receiving end of warm-heartedness in others and to have warm-heartedness for them as well. Uh, which doesn't necessarily mean agreeing with them. So uh, warm-heartedness is central to settling down and feeling okay and being able to gather ourselves. Technically, it also helps us feel safer, which flows into the next factor. Multiple systems are involved in heartwarming. Certainly oxytocin, a key neuromolecule. It's a hormone. It's called a hormone when it operates outside the nervous system. Same molecule. And one of the interesting things is that as oxytocin activity increases, related to warm-heartedness increasing, so anxiety decreases, which enables us to have a steadier mind. And uh, technically, there are oxytocin receptors in the amygdala, and they have an inhibitory effect. So they calm down the alarm bell of the brain. All right? Safer. Uh, also, when we feel safer, that tends to calm down that sympathetic arousal, fight or flight. Naturally, when we feel unsafe, attention skitters around looking for threats. Also, skitters around looking for threats internally, right? Uh, where a lot of threats can come. And so it's really helpful to realize that at least in this moment, it's not threat level orange. It might be. It might have been, for reals. But in this moment, if it's true, can we come to a place of, the Buddha would say, seclusion or sanctuary, maybe a better word, including inside our own mind or sitting here in a chair at Spirit Rock, can we come to a place of sanctuary in this second and this second and this second and see what it's like for guarding and tension and bracing to decrease. Oh, what a relief. You know, safe, safe at last. I feel like kids, you know, uh, playing hide and seek. Safe at home base, right? We all need our home base. Where are we safe? Safe, Ali Ali auction, free, 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 something like that. Okay? And then last, positive emotions. Um, People tend to underestimate the value of positive emotion. Uh, From my own practice in the last 30 years, during which I've been seriously engaged, I'd say, with Buddhist practice, um, took off first when I really started focusing on steadiness of mind, including deep forms of concentration, edging into the jhanas, so-called. Second major jump was really appreciating the value of positive emotion. Uh, gratitude, happiness, joy, delight, rapture, you know, bliss. And one reason why these are effective is they help to, when we're experiencing high levels of positive emotion, that increases levels of dopamine, which tends to keep a kind of gate closed to the neural substrates of working memory. 
working memory is like RAM, random access memory on a computer in the brain, and it's the uh, it's where the experience is represented. The actual physical location of the of working memory is upper outer frontal regions mainly. Well, those regions have a kind of gate, and when the gate is closed, we stay continuously focused on what's inside, what's being represented by those substrates of working memory, like the sensations of breathing or a feeling of loving kindness. When the gate opens, all kinds of barbarians come in (laughs) and we're thinking about the next shiny object. So functionally, a lot of steadiness of mind is about keeping that gate closed. What keeps that gate closed? Steady dopamine. So steadily experiencing uh, reward through positive emotion, including just the pleasure of tranquility or the simplicity of contentment. Still, there's positive emotion there. That tends to keep the gate closed. Another thing that opens the gate is a spike of reward opportunity, a spike of something really great, you know, that is other than the sensations of breathing, right? So if we maintain um, a high level of positive emotion, there can't be a spike because dopamine levels are already at their ceiling. They're already at the top range, which is one reason why classically as factors of deep non-ordinary states of absorption in the jhanas, so-called, these that constitute the wise concentration element of the Eightfold Path, two of the five factors of the jhanas traditionally are happiness and bliss. Wow. So that's one of the reasons why that works, because it keeps the gate closed at the top of its range so there can't be a spike even that would open it. Pretty good. Happiness is skillful means. All right. Good stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Microphone. And by the way, this is being recorded. I've written about this at length. Check it out. Smaller uh, light. I'm going to roll along. But if you feel like you're on the receiving end of a bit of a fire hose, there's a reason for it. <laughs> so why is it bad to open the gate to working memory? Well, uh, great question. So first, it's not bad. It's actually really useful. If we're obsessed with something, oh, stay with it. If we're obsessed on with something, let's say, the gate to working memory would be closed. And... Um, we might be negatively preoccupied or kind of stuck to something that's not helpful to us. Or maybe we're really focused on something that's neutral or positive. We're trying to solve some problem. But if we're oblivious to the kids crying down the hall or the smell of smoke coming off the frying pan in the kitchen, we're in trouble. So we, it's all about functional. It's all about adapt, being adaptive and in the service of a particular purpose. Right, So if I'm at a party and I'm just hanging out with a lot of people, I want that gate wide open, right? On the other hand, if I'm trying to concentrate in meditation and land in a really deep and quiet place, I want to keep that gate closed. So it depends on the purpose, right? So I wouldn't say good or bad, but more like effective, ineffective, helpful, not helpful. Um, And so to your question then, why is it? Uh, Why are you targeting like the dopamine being high enough that you don't access your working memory? I don't understand that. Oh, what I mean is great, and and I think it may well be that you're you're also leading into something that's really interesting too, which is 
if we are to study the mind, <clears throat> and in the beginning, that's usually done through sustaining attention to an object that's not very stimulating, like breathing. Functionally, if we're to do that, it's hard. It's useful to help ourselves by bringing in other factors, friends, allies inside our mind, to accomplish that purpose, to literally stay on the breath 10 in a row and then 10 tens in a row. No small thing. How do we do that? Well, if you, from the third person perspective, knowing ourselves objectively, What's happening when we're absorbed with one particular object of attention, it's all—it's primarily all that's being represented in working memory. We want to keep it that way. Well, one way to keep it that way is to understand how working memory is regulated physically. And it's regulated physically a lot through dopamine activity which is adaptive in evolution, if you think about it. So when dopamine drops, of course we want to be more aware of other reward opportunities. Or if dopamine spikes and there's an even better banana in the next tree, we want to track that as well. There's a reason why this mechanism evolved. Um, uh, But what it means functionally is that when the sense of reward in our experience drops, we become more distractible. As the sense of reward in the moment increases, we become less distractible. We're more engaged with what we're paying attention to. So, therefore, to me, that's a way of understanding the traditional instruction that's a couple thousand years old to help yourself feel a lot of happiness while you meditate, including even let yourself feel bliss or rapture in the body while you meditate in the service of steadiness of mind in a tradition that was very ascetic and renunciate and perfectly prepared to be uncomfortable. You know, why would they value pleasure in a sense so much? Well, because it was skillful means. And this is just for me an illustration of a larger, um, two larger points. One, uh, making good use of emotionally positive material rather than denying it and pushing it away, as many people do, I think, in the meditative world. And second, appreciating um, how a little understanding of what's going on under the hood, as it were, in the hardware, can be useful in our practice. Now, what happens, maybe this is also what you're getting at, there's often a natural progression in meditation during a single sitting, if you're sitting, as well as over the course of a meditative career, there's kind of a progression from what's called focused attention practices, like I did with you here. You're on the breath, stay on the breath. Mind wanders, come back. Mind wanders, come back. Focused attention. That then tends to move into what's called open awareness or open monitoring, sometimes called choiceless awareness where instead of trying to stay really zeroed in on one object of attention and very disengaged from everything else, there's enough stability of contact with that object of attention to stay with it. Uh, But on the whole, you're just kind of hanging out on the banks of the stream of consciousness, watching all the flotsam and jetsam roll by. You're witnessing. You're just hanging out. 
That's, that's kind of classic MBSR practice, mindfulness based stress reduction practice. That's a lot of what people mean these days when they talk about mindfulness. Open awareness. Just presence, sustained presence, unattached to what's rolling through consciousness, um, non-preferentially, just present. Right? And then in the third stage, commonly of practice, people move into abiding as awareness, in which there's what predominates is just the sense of awareness, and there's a kind of a minimal engagement with whatever objects are flowing through awareness, but mostly we're grounded in awareness itself. Diana Winston has a really nice book about this, The Little Book of Being, in which she talks through these three kinds of practice. They sort of blur together, but I think they're meaningfully distinct. So as people move through this progression, the effort involved in focused attention tends to subside. And probably this dopamine mechanism in the substrates of working memory is less relevant as people, and and you even see evidence for this actually in research scans that top-down systems that regulate attention, like in the anterior frontal cingulate cortex, they gradually go kind of quiet because they're not so needed, and we're just there. We're just there. We're just there. Um, Especially we're just there if we're abiding as awareness itself. And maybe that might have been part of what was in the comment there or question. I don't know. I just find it very cool. And and again, the, the super bottom line is what's your experience. And over time, you know, do you suffer less? Right? And uh, cause less harm to other people. And that's the real criterion. Okay. Uh, how about I keep rolling? Thank you. And um, I want to talk now about the sort of second major topic here, wholeness, and how to use this information. So, I'm going to offer what I think are some things that are true. See if you think they're true as well. The structure of suffering is one part of us struggling with other parts. For example, there's the saying, pain is, ne- is inevitable, suffering is optional. Uh, let's say uh, you stub your toe. And then, on top of that, you get mad at whoever put the table there. And then you realize it was me who put the table there. And then you get mad at yourself for getting mad at yourself and not practicing self-compassion like Tara Brock said. And on and on it goes. So parts struggling with parts. That's the structure of suffering, if you think of it. Well, uh, that means that as the sense of inner division, inner conflict, as Freud talked about, let's say, and Shakespeare long before that, to be or not to be, right? Um, As the sense of parts and inner division, including parts that are disowned, that are shamed or suppressed uh, or shoved down, uh, as that diminishes, that sense of inner division, disowning, exclusion, internal exile diminishes, and there's more of a sense of being whole, being undivided, being present as it is, which may include physical or emotional pain that 
is natural and inevitable and inescapable. Um, as that happens, we suffer less. And we also feel more whole, more ourselves. It's a good and lovely thing. A way into this is to appreciate that um, always there is just the mind as a whole. There is just the mind as a whole. And technically, when we're caught up in parts, either in the form of uh, task-oriented problem solving, and there's a place for parts struggling with parts. There's a place for analytic task-oriented problem solving. Or when we're caught up in daydreaming, it's kind of spacing out, letting the mind wander, there too is the structure of that as you're fantasizing about this or that and there's a point of view about this or that and it's just all these characters in the drama including a me who is imagined who's going to you know, have things happen to the me. Okay, there's a place for that. On the other hand, there's a fair amount of suffering including a lot of internal self-preoccupation that happens and the neural basis, going back to localization, for either task-oriented doing or ruminating and mind-wandering is in the midline of the cortex. Task-oriented is more frontal. Ruminating is more rearward and spreading to the sides in the so-called default mode network. That network is very active when we're lost in thought or engaging in what's called mental time travel in the future or the past, uh, also self-preoccupied with ourselves, Lots and lots of midline activation. On the other hand, as research shows, when you uh, just kind of come into the present moment, disengaged with um, the future or the past, with less sense of self, taking things as they are, the suchness of what they are, well, interestingly, this is one of the useful, cool findings in neuroscience these days, activity in the midline decreases, and the suffering associated with that midline activity decreases as well, and activity in networks on the sides of the brain, especially the right hemisphere, the right side, for right-handed people, which is involved in nonverbal, gestalt, visual, spatial, holistic processing. This is reversed for many left-handed people, but the general principle is the same. So midline activity decreases, midline activity associated, let's say, with doing, broadly defined, parts with parts, lateral networks on the sides increase with much more of a sense of being, being whole, being in the present, less caught up in the future or the past, just being, letting things be. Pretty good. So how to do this? Yeah, question. You want a microphone? Great. Here we go, right there. Thank you. Uh, maybe you already answered this. Uh, I doubt it. The, 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 could you say some more about the process of going from, you're talking about the struggling parts, you step yep. your toe, to moving to the sense of wholeness? You bet. That's hardcore where I'm going. You got it. That's great. Right, that's the money question. Like, yeah, right, Rick, how to do it. So, yeah. So, See, here's my next slide. 
it's good. <laughs> and here's a pretty brain picture to just kind of, so you'll believe me. <laughs> anyway, uh, remember I said that um, self-centeredness tends to involve midline activation. That's the uh, blue, the blue blobs. So when you give people, typically college sophomores, not always, um, you know, the instruction to kind of just obsess about something, lots of midline activation. On the other hand, if you give them classic mindfulness instructions to stay in the present, you know, there you are in the MRI, right? You're in the scanner, but um, burr, burr, burr. but just be, be, be here now. Just, you know, you don't need to try to do anything. You don't need to react to anything. Just kind of be present. The red blobs that indicate activity on the sides of the brain, you know, show up. Okay? So how to do it? How do we activate lateral networks? There are a number of ways to do this, and I'm going to um, kind of walk you through an experiential practice in a moment, and then we'll segue into lunch. Okay? Um, so here's a good list. You'll see that I did not invent any of these things. I'm pulling together classic effective suggestions and I'm grounding them in a third-person, neurologized, naturalized understanding of why they work and how we can use that understanding of why they work to help them work more effectively and, frankly, to be more motivated to doing them. So, if we come into the present and stay there, we're naturally going to decrease midline activity with its sense of internal fragmentation. And you can run the experiment. As soon as you, you know, when your kind of mind is wandering into the future or the past, you'll just notice the sense of being jostled. Many voices, many perspectives, many wants, just... On the other hand, come into the present, suddenly you feel more whole, feel more integrated, you know, less internally conflicted. So come into the present. Also, there's a place for problem solving. I like the quotation attributed to Sokni Rinpoche, think the same thought again and again, but 10 is enough. (laughs) You know, if it's productive to problem solve or to ruminate, okay. But if you're just doing laps around the same track, digging it deeper as a lot of it goes, you know, disengage pull out. One of the really effective findings from research is that negative rumination is a primary major factor of mental health issues, subtle to gross. Disengaging from negative rumination. Uh, You know, it's one thing to be kind of pleasurably fantasizing about, you know, the kids coming home for the holidays or whatever, Um, but to be caught up in rumination that's saturated with negative emotion and not going anywhere, that's not good for us. So, Pull out, pull out. Don't follow it. And gradually develop the habit of, of not getting lost in rumination. All right? Relaxing the sense. Oh, yeah, go. Uh, microphone? Okay, super. Um, I'm wondering... In terms of rumination, for yeah. me, um, I deal with a chronic pain issue, mm. and that always feels like such an erosion of um, some of my best intent. Yeah. 
And it doesn't feel like it's a thought process like rumination. Yeah. But it has the same effect of distracting. I don't know where it happens in the brain. Yeah. Know, where it happens in my body. Yeah. Um, so yeah. what? How? How would you speak to that? In yeah. The well, pain is really hard on us, and um, I have family members who grapple with. I would say mild um, chronic pain, mild to moderate. I have a, a, a friend and teacher, Vidya Mala Birch. B-U-R-C-H, whose work is worth knowing if you have chronic pain, who is in intense, fairly fairly intense and chronic pain and um, teaches a lot about it with mindfulness. Uh, she has a program called Breathworks, and she teaches people to do it, and she's really the real deal. Comes from New Zealand, uh, was an athlete, uh, developed really, really serious back problems, and uh, here she is today, you know, teaching Birch. So... Um, one thing that she teaches um, is kind of the classic uh, first dart, second dart. It's the idea that pain is the first dart. Uh, can we minimize the second darts we throw ourselves, which include negative rumination, which is understandable. Fear, worry, hopelessness, despair. And one of, as Vidyamala will, talks about it, the break, a key breakthrough for her in the hospital uh, when she was just in a terrible amount of agony um, with no end in sight as like a 18-year-old or a 23-year-old, she realized that all she had to do was to get through the next moment. You know, just one moment at a time. And that made a huge difference for her. And that pulled her out of rumination, brought her into the moment. So um, I, I would say that, and that's a way to distinguish between the raw experience, which may well be extremely uncomfortable, physically and or emotionally. Uh, uh, but that's different from the rumination about it, and rumination doesn't add value generally. Uh, no? Yeah, as you well know. Yeah. Now, pain undermines our capacity not to ruminate. You know, it, it, it tends to undermine our best intentions, uh, for sure, and it's hard. You know, but that's why I think... Uh, Programs like Vidyamalas are really, really helpful. And social support, community, and a lot of other things. And what is also there? You know, the cultivation of just amazement and gratitude and what parts of the body are not hurting and what's going okay in relationships and what is beautiful right now, you know, and also that's really helpful. Yeah, yeah. Um, relaxing the sense of I with pain or other things there, there tends to be an activation of taking life personally the Buddha taught a lot about uh, not taking life so personally and relaxing, releasing, softening the classically contracted sense of a one who possesses things or identifies with things or is better than others or worse than others right? relaxing that a lot of selfing lives in the midline as it were. Uh, panoramic view, sense of things as a whole. Um, I'll talk a bit about that. Not knowing, allowing oneself to not know. Midline activities, full of verbal activity, conceptualization, uh, stepping out of that conceptualizing and knowing mind, and sensing the body as a whole, which is a practice we'll do in a moment. Right? So these are good ways. These are good ways to come into a sense of wholeness. Pretty clear? 
Um, I want to say a word about something uh, that I could have commented on earlier, and then we'll then we'll do a practice and have lunch. Okay. So I want to say this now rather than after your practice, because I want to let you just sort of be all blissed out as you go into lunch. Okay. So uh, as the Buddha wa- you know wandered India, one of the very first things he classically taught is one of the three pillars of Buddhist practice, which is translated often as virtue or restraint, morality. Uh, In other words, I just want to name that we practice for the sake of others, not just for ourselves. And that even though here we're focusing on the how of um, steadiness and wholeness, nowness and allness, we draw upon the sense of others in the service of that practice. And the fruits of that practice can benefit others too. Really, really, really important. It's foundational. Ethics, morality are foundational. Uh, They're foundational as an aid pragmatically to practice. And our pragmatic practices should be nested in a values-based framework that involves benevolence and service and generosity to others. Related to that, I want to mention something that's really close to my own heart, which is uh, the practice of generosity in everyday life, most of which is not financial. We give each other our attention. We receive them in our eyes. That's 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 an offering. We offer our work, we offer our time, right? we offer our own practice, we offer restraint, not interrupting others, even if what they're saying is annoying. Uh, and there's a limit. So generosity is great. There's a word for it in Pali, dana, you know, the generosity, the, the monastics lived on the generosity of the villagers who didn't have much to offer in it, who would still share their rice. Um, for that one meal a day. Uh, Generosity is really important. And you might consider in your own practice where your generosity is. There's a term, uh, pathological altruism. We don't want to do that. We don't want to, you know, uh, have the well run dry. But is there a withholding, maybe, of some of your own giving? Uh, And also, is there a way to receive more of the generosity of others? to give them the gift of receiving their gift. It's really good. Really good to practice in that way. And um, in particular, I think about sitting here, how we're sitting here in the generosity of the Buddha and then the 2,500-year-old tradition of the Sangha in the sense of the monastics, who really have kept the flame of life alive, as well as the sangha of lay people, householders like me and you. I don't see any robes in the room right now. Uh, who also have supported practice and been engaged with practice. We're, I'm, we're sitting in a teaching of science and scientists. Uh, we're also sitting in a setting that was gifted, the square mile. I was on the board here for a long time, for some time ago. The square mile of this property was gifted. The probably about a third 
of the operating expenses of Spirit Rock, which is one of the world's leading institutions of Buddhism, literally, and now in the 21st century, uh, about a third of the operating expenses of Spirit Rock, including supporting its teachers, uh, come through donations. There's also the tremendous donation of the volunteers, including whether they're running the microphone or you know just making tea. Uh, that too is a form of generosity. So we're we're resting here. We're resting in the generosity of our teachers, who worked hard, went to Asia, came back, learned some things. Pretty great. Um, so I think it's helpful just to appreciate that in our practice that we're we're here amidst the receiving of so many gifts that have come to us. Um, and if, if you're so inclined, if you want to, you might consider some generosity to Spirit Rock from yourself in any kind of form. You know, telling someone about its programs, uh, offering your time, you know, uh, putting in the bowl some advice. <laughs> That's an offering. Uh, sharing a poem. Uh, maybe even offering some money if you're so inclined in this, you know, society that does that sort of thing. And it doesn't go to me. I mean, it goes to this institution. Uh, and you might really think about that if, if your heart is moved. The Buddha really taught, you know, offer what serves your practice. Frame your generosity as what gladdens your heart. And one way that I gladden my heart here is I make this kind of efficient commitment to be part of a stewardship circle. Uh, you too can be a steward. I love that word, a traditional word, a steward, you know, taking care. Uh, it's interesting that the Buddha's last words were, things fall apart, tread the path with care. Things fall apart, tread the path with care. There are different translations for those final words. This is Stephen Batchelor's. I think it's an excellent one. Tread the path with care. Care in the dual sense of heartfeltness and conscientiousness. Tread the path with care. So one way I try to express my care for Spirit Rock is as a steward. So my you know, credit card is, you know, is tagged every month. Uh, the minimal contribution is $25 a month. You might want to join me as a steward here in the stewardship circle. And if that's of interest to you, they have little forms out there, you know, during the lunch break. You can check them out. Uh, you can always stop it at any point if your circumstances change. Um, and it's not the only way to express generosity and contribution to Spirit Rock as an organization, but it's a really helpful one. It creates certainty and reliability for them. It's a simple way to make that offering ourselves. And for me, you know, honestly, every time I see that little bit on my bank account, it makes me happy. It's like, yeah, I'm helping in some way. And last, about this reflecting I think about the Dark Ages, the medieval period in Europe and in Western um, society, the Dark Ages, and the monasteries that kept knowledge alive, protected knowledge, were beacons of sincere spiritual practice, transcended political division of the time. They were sanctuary as well. They tended to the poor. 
They helped the sick. They were um, islands of stability and heart and wisdom in a sea of chaos. And I think in our current times, institutions like Spirit Rock that are refuges and solid and they stand for things, diversity, inclusion, uh, the cultivation of an open, warm, and strong heart. Uh, These institutions are more important than ever these days. And so it's more important than ever for me to feel like I'm helping uh, as one of the many stewards of this particular institution. And you might want to join me in that. So, and that was the entirety of the Donna talk. Uh, so, if you like, I thought we could do a practice here around sensing the body as a whole. It's a really interesting practice. It was hard for me when I first started it, but with experience, I'm now able to drop right in. I suspect people who are already really in their bodies, like super rock climbers or dancers or yoga teachers, uh, etc., qigong practitioners, maybe you're more natural at it. Uh, so if, if it's difficult at first for you, it's really okay. And see what it's like. See what happens in your mind as more and more and more you have a sense of your body as a whole. So we'll do this for about 10 minutes or so and then flow into lunch. Okay? You want to try it? So the way I do it, And feel free to just drop into the sense of your body as a whole if you can. That's great. Um, Or if the sense of it crumbles, come on back to a smaller area of your body, get a sense of it as a whole, and then expand out to the whole body. As you do this, you're disengaging verbal activity. That helps us come home to ourselves. You're also really tuning in to the internal sensations of your body, which decreases rumination, increases activity in the insula in terms of interoception. Um, And naturally, you're emphasizing the right hemisphere for right-handed people uh, and its sense of things as a whole when you tune into your body as a whole. And it brings you right into the present moment. So it's got a lot of value this simple practice of awareness of the body as a whole. I'll offer as few words as possible. Here we go. Being aware of breathing. And if you choose not to be aware of breathing, see if you can just be aware of other sensations in the body. Sensations of breathing. for a bit, just kind of scout around your whole body, scan your whole body for sensations of breathing. Obviously in the chest, sensations in the hips as the chest rises and falls, in the head and neck as well, internal and external sensations related to breathing.
and being aware of sensations in your chest as a whole. And a way into this is be aware of sensations on the left side of the chest. The right side. left and right together. And try this as well with sensations in the front and then the back and front and back together. Also bottom of the chest and top of the chest. that you're more and more aware of your chest as a whole as you breathe. Many sensations as a single whole experience. And then at your own pace, expanding to include sensations elsewhere, such as internal sensations in the diaphragm, cool air coming into the lungs. shoulders and neck, arms and hands. Sensations in shoulders, neck, arms, and hands known along with other sensations in the chest.
including the head, a single whole field of sensation. And then at your own pace, including other parts of your body, belly, base of the pelvis, the hips, legs, even feet. So that there is an increasingly stable, single, whole field of sensation. as you breathe. can help to have a sense of receiving experience, letting it come to you. can help to have a sense of spaciousness. Edgelessness. Abiding as a whole body breathing.
And then in the last few minutes of this, you can widen and soften further, being aware of sounds amidst sensations, and where really in getting a growing sense of being mind as a whole, being this moment of consciousness as a whole, sensations, sounds, thoughts, points of view, feelings, images, intuitions, all of it included as a single whole experience, moment after moment. All of you continuously undivided.
in this sense of the whole can be a feeling of edges softening. Edges inside, between things, softening. So there's more of a sense of whole. Edges between body and the world softening. The heart softening. All of you here, continuously, undivided. How about we have some lunch? Uh, Please come back at 25, well, period, but also uh, at 1.35, so it's an hour, and and, uh, we'll see you then. Take good care of yourself and keep exploring what it's like to integrate ordinary functioning with these ways of being. So, see you in an hour.
came back. Thank you. So, um, before we slide into nowness, the present moment, um, any comments or questions about what's happened so far? Or anything else you want to bring up, hopefully related to the topics of the day? <laughs> Great, right there. Microphone? Yeah. Want to try the mic? Yes, great. About joy or happiness or all those other fun things leading to steadiness of attention. Um, in my experience, it's sort of the other way around when I can concentrate for mm. a period of time and then the, the joy comes in. But, I mean, how do you manufacture joy mm. just out of nothing in order to study your attention or, or period. Yeah. Okay. So there are several things uh, I think that are really useful to consider in what you brought up there. The first is that, um, <clears throat> as I said, the fundamental practice is simply to be with the, the mind. That said, to be able to sustain being with the mind, to sustain being in the present, in a non-judgmental, open, spacious kind of way, for more than a few breaths in a row, is pretty challenging for a lot of people. So then we explore more deliberate uh, inviting, protecting, and encouraging or nurturing of other factors in awareness, like compassion for ourselves or understanding why we meditate, let's say. So so there's a place for both a very receptive aspect of practice and there's a place for a more active, more deliberate dimension of practice. Some people are very strong in one and they need more balance. I was myself uh, very strong in the form of you know letting go and letting in rather than letting be. People would say, let your feelings be, Rick. Experience your experience. I was like, are you insane? My experience hurts. I don't want to feel my feelings. What feelings? <laughs> Go away, feelings. Um, I had to really learn to let be. On the other hand, sometimes people get trapped in just letting be, letting be, letting be. They're too inert. And they don't, they're not resourceful. They don't exercise agency inside their own minds. Uh, even sometimes I've known people who are to me, strange in that they are very active in intervening in their external world and they value those who are active to prevent or reduce problems and to increase and support solutions, whether it's a plumber or their doctor or their um, employees at work, let's say. Very focused there, active effort. But for them, it's like a taboo. There's a dogma around the taboo of active effort inside the mind. Why? It's weird. It's not what the Buddha taught. The bulk of the Eightfold Path involves making active efforts inside our own mind. As we cultivate wise view, wise intention, as we practice wise speech, etc., etc., etc. So that's part one. Um, part two, to manufacture, as you put it, any of these factors that help us, including opening, let's say, to gratitude, that would be problematic. And to really underline it 
point implicit, I think, in what you're saying, is deliberate, more deliberate, um, active forms of practice should never be about um, bypassing your actual experience or suppressing it or denying that which is problematic in the world. I think of reality, whether it's our experience or the world, as like a mosaic with many tiles. And it's important to see all the tiles and recognize that we have a brain, number one, that's designed to obsess about the tiles that are flashing red lights and to ignore the rest. We also, by habit and by culture, tend to zoom on from the green light tiles before we internalize them to leave a lasting change in the body. And um, as we engage the whole mosaic, mosaic, it's really helpful to appreciate that the green lights usually, not always, but usually are indicators of value. Those experiences feel good because they are good for us. They're calming, they protect health. Positive emotions, for example, are really good for long-term health. They tend to bring us with others. Uh, They help us recover from stress. Um, And they help those green lights, as it were. And as we internalize them to grow those as traits, we we develop strengths that help us deal with the crud in life, too. And the crud inside our own body, our own health, and in other people. So, for me, um, the appreciation of more enjoyable, rewarding experiences, it should not be as a strategy to avoid pain or to overlook what's problematic. And also, it's useful, I think, to recognize that seeing the good and taking in the good and growing the good is a wonderful, wonderful um, um, ally uh, for dealing with what's quote-unquote bad. So that. And then, last, if you are um, trying to get something going, and again, uh, steadiness of mind is something we're trying to get going. Compassion is something we're trying to get going. Like, Buddhist practice, psychology, is something we're trying to get going. If, in non-dual terms, you're trying to get going a sense of non-dual oneness with everything, that's still trying to get something going, right? We're trying to get something going. And sometimes doing that is like trying to light a fire with wet wood. It just won't ignite. It just doesn't come. Uh, There's skill in evoking and inviting and protecting and nourishing and returning to that which we want to cultivate, that which we want to develop. And that skillfulness includes not overreaching. Like right now, let's say your back hurts, uh, you're worried about your kids, you're really worried about the state of your, your country and the world. And also, can you see something that's beautiful? And also, can you look at another person and have a felt sense of their basic goodness also? That's kind of it. And also, can you be aware of uh, awareness itself, which is like the sky that the storm clouds pass through. It's undisturbed itself by what disturbances pass through it. And also, 
And then, as attention gets trained, can attention rest more and more in whatever you want to grow? Gratitude, sense of beauty, sense of ease, sense of perspective. You know, can, can you dwell more there? There's this term, you may know it, uh, the Brahma Viharas. Brahma being kind of like the domain of heaven, exalted beings. Vihara means dwelling place. Where do you dwell? Where do we dwell? Where does our attention rest? The bouncing ball of attention. Where does it tend to sit? Uh, and how can we help ourselves dwell increasingly in happiness, love, and wisdom? Someone asked Deepama, a great teacher, um, no longer alive, uh, what was in her mind? You know, in the, toward the culmination of her life and the fruition of practice. What's, what's in your mind? What's it like to be you? Right? And she said, concentration, love, and peace. That's all that was there. Concentration, love, and peace. So that's where we hope to dwell increasingly. And we dwell there increasingly as we internalize what that feels like increasingly. And then it becomes easier the next time to call it up. So states are the basis of traits. We can't grow traits, traits of mindfulness, traits of happiness, traits of, sorry, traits of concentration, um, love and peace. We can't grow those traits except by experiencing them to begin with. Right? So states are the basis of traits. And traits foster states, which then give us a chance to reinforce traits. And we can work that in an upward spiral. That's a path with heart, as Jack would put it. Maybe one more person, two more people, three more people, and then I'm just, I'm a leftist. See, I'm... <laughs> no. I am actually, but okay. So who you and you and you, and that's then we'll get into nowness. See, it's going to be all present moment. Okay. So I have mixed feelings with um, a body scan. So I have mixed experiences. So I have chronic pain, and yeah. especially the lower pain, and even lying down on the floor can be extremely painful. Yeah. So over time, I learned to breathe into the pain, and at relieves the, the tension a little bit so I can lie down. But then when I'm done with the job, suddenly I notice, oh my God, I have burning in my hands, my feet are tingling and there are needles and pins and suddenly everything else comes up, which I didn't notice before because the other pain was stronger. Um, what can I do to have a little bit more enjoyment with body scans? Because I feel like it helps at some point. But having these, all these other issues then going on, not even my mind, it's more the pain. Yeah, I have not had to practice with that myself. Um, I've had to practice with mortal fear around certain health issues that are happily resolved. Uh, but I, so first, I haven't had to do 
to deal with that. And that's where I would, again, really look for expertise among people who've grappled with that deeply. Um, Another person whose work I like is in California, Tony Bernhardt. Uh, she wrote, I think, How to Be Sick and other good things. So there's, and there's a lot there. From this kind of material, I do have a few things that do strike me about this. Um, and you may well have drawn upon them already. I'll just kind of run through them. Uh, one is to, uh, with an awareness of, let's say, pain, and pain is there. It is there. There is pain. Uh, What is also present in consciousness? Can there also be the sense of warm-heartedness? Because uh, relationality is analgesic. That's a fancy way to put it. It's, you know, feeling connected down-regulates pain systems in the brain. I don't know if you knew that, but it really does. It's quite striking, actually. And so just the feeling of lovingness flowing in and flowing out, both feeling loved and cared for and befriended by others, even if sometimes they annoy the heck out of you, while at the same time just having a a large-heartedness, a radiance of your own generous heart for others in any any way, shape, or form. Uh, And for some people, that sense of relationness becomes supernatural, if not transcendental. Who are those uh, um, guardian angels or beings or the ultimate ground that's with you, if that's meaningful for someone. Second, uh, this material in particular would speak to the value of trying of just trying to go out to the sense of consciousness as a whole, because pain by its nature is designed to be very compelling. It's a part that wants to compel attention. So to keep training in and practicing the sense of things as a whole. Pain is part of the whole, and there's a whole. And the sense of the whole inherently is going to reduce the second darts we add to the raw pain experience and also, I think, tends to help people bear it better. Pain is just, just literally, it's just one more thing in the total field of consciousness. And that strikes me as potentially valuable. I think I did something similar during this meditation on the floor that I tried to go away from the pain, the little pain, the big one is not so easy, but the little pains, they come, come up and try to focus on the parts on my body. They are not hurting because there are some they are not hurting, luckily. Yeah, yeah. and, and what, uh, what I'm saying here is, see what it's like. What, what is it like? Just get a sense of what's actually the case. There's just one moment of consciousness, Right? Moment after moment after moment. Just like look around the room or just don't even move your eyes. Just track the image. There's one visual percept with many things in it. Right? So consciousness is just like that, literally like that. There's just one moment. So, But we don't tend to be with the moment as a whole. We tend to, you know, there is just this moment of consciousness focused on this part. And then that part, a quarter second later. The opportunity is to just kind of drop in to the whole gestalt, the whole thing, uh, which includes all the body sensations and it includes awareness. It's, un- it's non-dual in that fundamental way. It's undivided. 
awareness and its contents, just the totality of the mind altogether. That's what I'm talking about here. And I have a hunch that that might be really helpful. Because when you're in mind as a whole, mind as a whole never is a problem. Yeah, and feel it. Feel it. You think about it, but start by thinking about it, end up by feeling about it. You know. Yeah. Check it out. I mean, you just go... When you have that sense of things as a whole, inside that whole are preferences and pains and joys and da-da. But mind as a whole, just is what it is. Not a problem. Okay. Next person, and then... Next person. So I think you're the next person. Great. Yeah, I have a brain brain science question. You were mentioning earlier when you were talking about intention Mm -hmm. and that everything was kind of experienced in the brain and all the senses. But just in terms of embodiment, what about that we have all the, the neural receptors in the gut and in the heart? And I just read recently that there are actually lots of neurons in the heart so don't we have a brain throughout the body and other centers, heart, yeah. gut? And so that maybe we're actually experiencing, we truly are experiencing more of the whole. So I was curious about <clears throat> yeah. that. Great, great. So definitely, uh, it is all of reality making this moment of consciousness. Now, the movement of Jupiter... I'm not going to get into astrology here, but, you know, it probably doesn't have much influence over hearing and seeing and remembering and wanting and enjoying or suffering right this second. So we can start looking at factors or, or causes and conditions of this moment of experience, let's say of intention, and start... Um, considering them in terms of what is going to have the greatest and most immediate influence. Now, certainly, if a person uh, that you just... I used to hitchhike when I was a lot younger, and you'd go for rides, and sometimes they were amazingly profound conversations. Sometimes the guy was really a creep, and I wanted to get dropped off at the next light and, you know, whatever. But uh, a person could say something that has a huge impact. That was a cause, right, of an intention that we form for the rest of our life. Clarified a key value for us for the rest of our life. That 10-minute conversation with that person on a bus. Uh, That's a cause. But that said, coming further and further in, if we're thinking about the body, the immune system, the musculoskeletal system, gastrointestinal, cardiovascular, they all influence what we're experiencing. Uh, in, including, let's say, what we're intending. But more and more where the action mainly is is in the nervous system, entwined with those others, not trying to minimize them or deny them, but just if we're telling the truth, whether it's a cat or a human, uh, where the primary um, causes are, factors of a moment of experience, mainly in the nervous system whose headquarters is in the brain. Now, there are also aspects of the nervous system as you say, that are very entwined in the gut, including with the micro, and they interact with the microbiome, all those other little critters living in the gut. Really important. 
I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I like my gut. I try to take good care of it. I take probiotics. My wife's a GI specialist. Her license plate reads gut wizard. You know, <laughs> I sleep with her. <laughs> so, so that's important. Cardiovascular, very important as well. You know, as you say as well, there are uh, many, many, many neurons that are involved in the, the physical heart, right? They all play a role. And sometimes the role they play is a primary one. Like if, for example, serotonin metabolism in the gut is disturbed because the microbiota are disturbed, that could be the primary source of depressed mood. And intervening in the gut could be the primary way to lift mood. So its causal force is really big sometimes, absolutely. And it's also true that if we can manipulate the rhythm of the heart so that it's more so-called coherent, that then feeds back into the nervous system in ways that tend to be calming and strengthening and centering. So, yeah, absolutely, all works together. And uh, what I love about all that is that it gives us all kinds of ways to help things. All kinds of good ways to help things. Yeah. Thank you. Totally. Okay, one more. Hi, this is going back to um, steadiness of mind and um, about finding an object of attention. And you made a comment about if somebody has a lot of trauma that the breath should not be the object of attention. Right. Uh, The word should, I I wouldn't quite use. It's okay, though, you used it. I, I was naming that a person may not want to choose that. And that came from me unwittingly just generically naming the breath as an object and having people uh, who were um, really specialists in trauma say, Rick, you know, that's not a good object of attention for a lot of people. So that's where that comes from. So I just, so beyond, and why for that? Yeah, uh, trying to stay away from any kind of trigger warning necessity here. First, uh, for people, a lot of people's, Trauma uh, does involve a sense of freezing as a body and immobilization of breathing. And then, frankly, some traumatic events involve being assaulted in ways that, you know, um, uh, stop, you know, people from breathing. And so that can be quite alarming to bring awareness to, I'm told. So for me, it's kind of a real... It's respectful and inclusive, just to name options and to normalize it. Uh, another word is relax. Again, unwittingly, I trained therapists. I use that word relax a long time. I've had trauma people say, well, that's not always the best word uh, because it's sometimes used seductively and manipulatively uh, for different kinds of abuse. And so I actually, I'm going to change this slide. <laughs> I use, now I use language more like easing softening, if you mention the word relax, but it's framed in a larger larger context. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, okay, great. Yep. Okay? All right? Good. So now, uh, we're going to keep on going. Nowness, allness, and timelessness, uh, ending it on time at 4.30. <laughs> So here's a quotation from Suzuki Roshi, no longer alive, major source of Zen coming into the West. 
what in the world is he talking about? Enlightenment is to forget this moment and grow into the next. Like that, enlightenment's a big word. Wow. There are also many, many quotations in uh, the early Buddhist canon that involve present moment awareness. I'll read this from the Dhammapada. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the farther shore of existence. Now the farther shore of existence is another, is a uh, uh, synonym for nirvana. Enlightenment even. Wow. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present and be enlightened. Rest in nirvana in that moment. Wow. With mind wholly liberated, you shall come no more to birth and death. So being the present, really a big deal. So what is the present moment? And what does the brain do to pull us away from the present moment? And how can we understand, on the other hand, how it helps us move closer and closer and closer to the emergent edge of now? Now is a mystery. In science, it's not um, clear uh, what now is, or even why it is, or what is time. I'll tell you my favorite interpretation that I got from the physicist Richard Muller at UC Berkeley, who is one of those people that, you know, if the coin toss had gone the other way, would have gotten a Nobel Prize. So, and he wrote a book that's quite delightful, if you like this kind of stuff, called The Physics of Now. Uh, I think it's called Now, The Physics of Time. Right, we're in time. Now is all we've got, and yet we don't even know what we have. Right? What is now? So, his notion, which I just think is like, oh my God, it's so cool. Uh, For me, at least. So, Big Bang. The Big Bang, right? For some reason, who knows reasons for what? Like, what? The Big Bang. What? Right? If you're not awestruck, you're not paying attention. Like, why is anything here at all, right? Uh, Okay, Big Bang, ba-boom, basic. uh, Nearly 14 billion years ago, the universe just bubbles into being. And then it's been expanding ever since, right? Um, Galaxies forming, supernovae blowing up, producing heavy elements like oxygen that we breathe or the iron in her blood, or the gold in my wedding ring, uh, calcium in our teeth and bones, carbon in organic molecules, right? Then time continuing to pass, and these clouds of heavier elements forming rocky planets like our own, and then bodies three and a half billion years later, the evolution of life. Here we are today, right? Whoa. Okay, the universe is expanding spatially. The galaxies are moving away from each other. There's local movement inside frames of reference while space itself is expanding. That's, that's science. We don't notice it because we're in space and it's all very subtle. Over, you know, so we don't notice the physical expansion of the universe directly. And Muller's point is that this is a space-time universe. It's four dimensions. Three of space, one of time. So we have the four-dimensional universe. 
from the Big Bang, in which space is expanding and time is expanding as well. And the next instant of the temporal time expansion of the universe is the next moment of now. This moment of now is the expand the the temporal expansion of the universe continuously. So in effect, we are continually in creation as new time is being created. The universe is continually creating new space. We don't notice it because it's so vast and on such a vast scale. The universe is also uh, creating new time and the creation of the next instant of time uh, is now. Or the creation of this instant of time is now. And now. Isn't that the coolest thing? Just to imagine, like, now is the creation of time. Now. Like, we're living in creation continuously. Now. Like, how cool is that? <laughs> okay. So, that's one way to think about it. Now, what does the brain do? All right. So, I'm going to summarize a lot of stuff. And then we're going to do a little meditation here. Great. Okay. Good. So. When something happens. Within about a. 20th of a second. There's the emergence of the perception that something has happened. Within a 10th or two or three tenths of a second, there's a clear, oh, you know. If you were to watch that movie, and you can start watching your mind a lot because we're continuously alerted by one thing after another. And these are systems that helped our ancestors survive in the Serengeti Plains and even farther back in time in Jurassic Park, all right? They kept them on their toes. So you can watch this process in your own mind. Something happens in the first half second or so, there's a sense of being alerted to it. And then on the heels of that, so when you're alerted, something has happened. That's all you know. Something new. Something new. Something has changed. You don't know where it is or what it is or what it means. You just know something new has happened. It's the leading edge of experience. The first emergent edge of experiences involves alerting. And then comes orienting And then comes what's called evaluating. What's the relevance of what's happened? And then you start to cope with it. Under kind of ordinary conditions of relatively routine activities, here we are just kind of relaxing, you know, or getting something done, or sort of on autopilot, doing the dishes, minds wandering. We engage systems in the brain that are involved with kind of directed, focused attention. They're also involved when we're lost in the ruminator, in the default mode network. Spaced out, daydreaming, worrying, so forth. Okay? These networks of attention are toward the upper part of the brain, and they help us stay focused in the moment, including paying attention to what might happen in the future or the past. And then... When something happens, more ancient neural networks of attention that are involved with alerting take over to update the field of consciousness. 
These more ancient alerting networks are quieter typically as focused attention networks keep us doing things. But when they need to come online because something new has happened, they kind of take over. They update the field of consciousness. And then after we start to assimilate, okay, the new normal, then we don't need to be alerted. Kind of goes back, gets quiet again, and we're then kind of uh, caught up in dealing with, with something. What this means, very simply, is that if we're interested in the practices that help us be utterly in the present moment, it's skillful to be more able to rest in the continual updating of consciousness, to rest in the alerting neural functionality of our own body, alerting and orienting, to rest in the first half second or so of the front end of the processing stream. Now, we can't and shouldn't spend all our time there uh, because you can't function. There's a place for, you know, leaving the present moment, thinking about the past, thinking about the future, kind of spacing out, tuning out. There's a place for that, right? But for a lot of us, that is way too developed, right? And for a lot of us, we really are interested in in the practice of presence, of truly being present, uh, including for its spiritual values, if you will, because it's in the present that we can really recognize, as the Buddha taught, the radical transience of experiences and the groundlessness, even the emptiness of existent experience in the present. So it's skillful means to be able to hang out at will when it's appropriate, like during meditation, uh, or walking in the woods with your dog in the present, uh, maybe while being with another person. It's skillful to be able to do that. So there are some good ways that we can train in resting in this alerting, updating aspect of experience. So I want to talk about those and then we'll do a little practice. Okay? Now I'm going to a little later talk about the second paragraph up here. The allocentric network thing. Um, I'll just leave that for the moment. That has to do with the allness idea. And the idea also that as we um, have a sense of wholeness that tends to foster a sense of nowness and allness, and vice versa. And their neural networks entwine with each other. The neural networks on the right side of the brain that support the sense of wholeness entwine with the neural networks in the brain that are mainly right-sided, that have to do with the sense of alerting, and with neural networks that promote a sense of connection with everything. So... At an experiential level, wholeness, nowness, and allness hang together, just like fragmentation, lost in thought, and a sense of separation and beleagueredness tend to hang together experientially. Their neural networks reinforce each other. Go the other way, uh, the sense of wholeness, nowness, and allness that is experientially, it's kind of synergistic and integrated, 
mutually reinforcing, um, is buttressed by the fact that the neural circuitry that supports those three qualities of consciousness also are intertwined and reinforce each other. That's pretty cool. So, I want to do a little practice with you about coming into the present. I like this quotation from Ajahn Chah. Uh, If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll be completely peaceful. Sometimes translated as happy. I like that too. So, as we do this practice which will be a practice of experiencing impermanence too, by its very nature. The closer we come to the present moment and the more rested we are in letting go of the moment to receive the next moment. Just like Suzuki Roshi said, as we, to grow into the next moment, we must let go of this one. As we do that, that is very much a practice of anicca in Pali or impermanence. And it can get kind of alarming, especially in deep meditation, when people really recognize the, the groundlessness of the moment of experience because it's continually disappearing. Faster, you know, even before we fully recognize this moment of experience, it's decaying beneath our feet continuously. And that can be really alarming as people approach that. It can lead to disgust. It can lead to uh, wanting to just bail. And so if you're going to do these kind of practices to their nth degree, it's really useful to have teachers who've been down that road and can talk about it. Uh, In the milder forms we're going to do here, and would be typical in an ordinary household or meditative practice, I think it's helpful to be aware of arisings because that's reassuring. Right? This moment is dying while this next one is being born. Focusing on the birthing, the arising of the next moment is reassuring. Also focusing on the, the ongoingness of the body, still here, still here, rocking in the free world, still here, still here. Winnicott, the great Daniel Winnicott, child psychiatrist, talked about going on being, the importance of feeling like you're going on being. And for an infant, to have that kind of reassuring support from caregivers to maintain that very somatic sense. To your point about the deeply important uh, viscera and everything else that, and somatic markers there to give us the sense of going on being. That's a resource to tolerate impermanence. Um, good. If your mind start, if you start, uh, not knowing is another one. Um, I'll do it. I'll do this. So this is not a slide. How many of you know the so-called five aggregates? Do you know what the five aggregates are? Good. Only one or two people. Just think how the goodness for everyone else. So the the Buddha said, look, uh, we can um, take the stream of consciousness and we can sort of sort it or divide it into these five elements, heaps, piles, skandhas. And So one pile of our experience. So we're sort of deconstructing our experience into its threads. One is what could be called form, the bare apprehension of stimuli. Sight, sound, 
and um, okay, sense a sense of things there. The next uh, element of this in the stream of consciousness is the hedonic tone or feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Do we like it? Do we dislike it? Do we, are we indifferent to it? That's the feeling tone or hedonic tone in modern psychology. Third aggregate is called perception or translated as perception. It has to do with labeling things, sorting them into categories, and also relating them to memory. Right? Is it a snake or a, or a, or a vine on the jungle trail? Perception. Then comes this huge catch-all category called the formations, basically. It means everything else. Thoughts, emotions, personality types, images, memories, you know, arising in the mind. That's, those are the formations. Uh, plans, attitudes, expectations, etc., etc. And then we have awareness as the fifth aggregate. You know, so that's, that's the Buddha's model of our experience. It has these five major elements in it. And in effect, um, the first four elements pass through the fifth element, the field of awareness. And in, in his model, including awareness, it's all dependently arising. Awareness in his model of the aggregates is not metaphysical or cosmic or transcendental. And in principle, I don't know if he would say this, but it's not different from the awareness of a mouse, a squirrel, or a monkey. It's awareness. Okay? Got the aggregates? Here's the point. Where's our suffering? In what aggregate does most of our suffering live? Yeah, the fourth one. Exactly right. Formations. That's where suffering and selfing live, mainly. In the moment of registering that something has happened, and it's a this or a that, with the barest sense of its pleasantness or unpleasantness or neither, and if it's unpleasant, you could say the barest sense of the first darkness of the unpleasantness of it, right? Um, there's no suffering. There's very little suffering in that. There's experience, but there's little suffering. Suffering gets going in the later stages of the processing stream. So if we deliberately emphasize attention and focus attention on the first three, especially form and perception, alerting, something's happened, and perception, what it is and where it is, if we kind of mainly hang out in form and perception, maybe the feeling tone too, we're going to suffer a lot less. It's kind of like moving through the sound barrier. It's like you can't hear the noise behind you. It's like you're so at the front edge of the processing stream, suffering's behind you. It doesn't have time to get its hooks in. All right, let's give it a whirl. Okay, so we do a little practice here. Then I think maybe we'll slide into a break and then finish strong. Uh, okay, great. So I'll, I'll try to say as little as possible because even my voice might you know, interrupt your process. In this exploration, what you're, I'll give you some tips. What you're trying to do is just be here receiving 
letting go, so you're not following anything, you're not investing and reacting to anything, you're not trying to understand anything. You're just as, you're, you're trying to help yourself stay present with the sense of the new, the, continually ari- the continual arising of the new, the new sensation of breathing, the new sound in the room the new just ticking of the stream of consciousness. Just whatever is new. And disengaging from evaluating, from problem solving, speculating, conceptualizing. See what it's like. You know, as the Buddha said, to let go of the past, let go of the future, and let go of the present. And to add of an instruction from Tibetan Buddhism, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and leave your mind alone. That, that's kind of what we're aiming for here. And then just see what that's like. And when, you know, the brain kind of sucks you out of the, you know, most emergent edge of the front end of consciousness, uh, that's, and you notice that it's okay, come back to, you know, it's like consciousness is like a windshield and uh, time streams through it. We move forward through time either way. You want to be as close as you can to the leading edge of that windshield. All right. So it helps to find a basic sense of all rightness. Uh, if we feel troubled, it's harder to stay in the present. Helping yourself find a sense of ease, calm strength. Warm-hearted. Part of what's happening is you are evoking certain feelings that are helpful and then they become more diffuse in the background of your consciousness, but which helps you come into the present such as feeling warm-hearted and content with things as they are so that you don't need to chase anything in the future or be preoccupied with anything in the past. A feeling of contentment helps us rest in the present.
recognize the fact of the continual arising of the next moment. Certainly as long as this body goes on living. Help yourself find a feeling of reassurance or comfort in the ongoing arising. Also be aware of endless endings. The fact of the continual disappearance, vanishing of whatever the previous moment has been. See what it's like to live in the middle between arising and ending. And deliberately let go through exhaling, for example. And have an attitude of surrender, of releasing, not seeking to hold on to any thought or sensation. Giving up any feeling of acquiring or keeping.
not needing to understand anything or connect anything. Living in this tiny sliver of time between the past and the future. Between the future and the past. It can help to stay alert, sitting up straight. Encouraging a certain brightening of consciousness. Living in the mystery of the present moment. moment I'll ring the the gong three times notice the experience of this
And as you come back to the room, uh, you can sustain this feeling of being really present with whatever's happening next. Kind of an openness to continual updating. And also notice the more that we converge on the present, we get as close to the objective now as possible, our suffering tends to fall away. Like I said, and like the quotation said, as we really are hanging in the emergent moment, not knowing, receiving, maybe honestly also with qualities of awe and delight, like, whoa, you know? Um, even when it feels crummy, like, whoa. Um, that as we do that, we tend to suffer less. Uh, in my marriage, I've been married a long time, so, um, and happily, mainly. Uh, one thing I've just noticed is that something will happen, my wife, let's say, and it's happened. I was just, someone, actually Tara Brock quoted to me recently, the opening paragraph of John Kabat-Zinn's wonderful book on mindfulness, Wherever You Go, There You Are. To paraphrase it, it's whatever has happened has already happened. Now, the only choice is how you will relate to it and respond to it. And in that way, so my wife does something in the moment, it's, you know, because in my mind, I, I get irked by it. I won't say it is irksome, although it really is. But if I get her, okay, fine, I get cranky. Uh, and then what I notice is that a minute or so later, whatever she did, it's not here anymore. It's gone. That word is no longer in the air. The act is no longer occurring. The it's, it's gone. The only place it continues is in my own mind, right? And you may know the Zen story. It's, um, it's gendered in ways that uh, are relevant to the culture of that time. So I'll name it. So two, two male monks with serious vows of celibacy are walking on a trail and there's a senior monk and a junior monk. And uh, they come to a muddy river, swollen, and on the banks of the muddy river, they see a beautiful princess wearing lovely silk robes, gowns, and um, she's staring at the muddy water. And, and the, the senior monk says, would you like me to carry you across? And she says, oh, thank you, noble sir. Uh, so he carries her across, sets her down. She goes her way. The monks go their way further up the trail. And then for the next mile or so, the junior monk is obsessing. We have vows of poverty, vows of chastity, vows of celibacy. We're not supposed to touch women. Uh, And how could he do that? How could he hold her warm body in his arms that way? How could he he have her scented hair brushing across his face that way? How could he do that? How, How could he hear her murmurs in his ears? How could he possibly do that? So finally he bursts out with all these complaints and criticisms to the senior monk who looks at him and then replies, I set her down on the opposite side of the river. You've been carrying her ever since. Right? You've been, to use that other word, dwelling. 
in this, you know, suffering ever since, I'm not dwelling there myself. I did what was appropriate. I, I moved on. Uh, where do you dwell? You know, what are you carrying that you don't need to keep on carrying? So the nice thing about being in the present moment is it helps us, you know, lay down a lot of those loads. Great. In a moment, we'll take a break, but first, I just a couple of reminder announcements. Uh, if you want continuing education credits, you know, make sure you're signing in and signing out and stuff. If you want to get the slides emailed to you, uh, just give me your name and email address. Uh, if you already get my newsletter, you won't get two copies because it only sends one copy to an email address. And if you're moved to uh, join me in being a steward here for Spirit Rock, they have forums out there as well I think you can sign up on. Okay, so how about come on back at, I'm going to be so generous, 3 o'clock, a big 22-minute break. Okay, see you at 3, 3. And then we'll get into the really cool stuff, and you won't get it if you don't come back. So, see you at three. Do you want CEs today? Do you want CEs today? Always. Yes, please. Yes, please. Are you the CE person? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. As usual. Yes. Rafael on Wednesday nights at Dominican University. Uh, you can. Some of you who come to that sitting group are in this room, so I'm glad you showed up. I appreciate that. And um, you can find out about it if you want on my website, which is rickhanson.net. There's a section there on a meditation gathering. Uh, probably also you could just search on it more generally. It's Wednesday nights, almost every Wednesday night. Uh, we start at 6.45 for a sit for 45 minutes. People can come in during the course of it if they're just coming in quietly, as many do. And then there's a little break and then a kind of talk and discussion ending at 8.30. So that's what's happening. And it's about 90-ish people every night, pretty loose. Uh, mix of people, uh, beginners, very experienced people are there as well. It's really fine. It's very welcoming, inviting. Nobody's going to try to sell you anything or enroll you in anything. It's, it's very chill. So if that interests you, Wednesday nights, Dominican University, Oh, it's at what is called the Interfaith Chapel in the Veritas building, which is across from one of their cafeterias. It used to be called the Heritage House. This this Edge Hill Mansion, that's another name for it, Edge Hill Mansion. Literally, I guess maybe the Edge Hills owned it. It was their summer home. I mean, you know, I could get lost in their summer home. Uh, but anyway, but now it's deeded to the Catholic Church and the university. Anyway, that's that sitting group if you're interested. Regular practice is good, and being part of a community is good. Uh, also, I want to uh, speak to a comment that someone made at, at the break that I found really useful. A lot of my material that's known is pretty traditionally psychological. Uh, this is how to heal trauma. This is how to... Uh, work out issues with your partner. This is how to raise a family. This is how to protect the long-term welfare of mothers, my first book. Um, and this is how to be more resilient. This is how to um, help yourself grow as much as you can from the experiences you're having, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're familiar with that material and suddenly walked into this workshop, you might think, what? You know, what have I gotten myself into here? What's the continuity? And um, the way I think of it is that 
there are foundational practices that, if perfected, can take you all the way of concentration and steadiness, lovingness, and fullness, equanimity, resilient well-being. Those three are really foundational. In this particular workshop, I want to build on that foundation, which is kind of presumed if you walked in the door. I should have warned you, I know. It's kind of presumed. And then on the basis of that, let's explore a kind of reverse engineering of enlightenment. Like when you read um, this, what? How do we actually do that? What does it truly mean to let go of the present and let go of the future continuously? And what actually is the farther shore of existence? What? So that's what this workshop's a lot about. I'm not promising enlightenment. It's more like this, this is really neat material and any bit of it can occupy a person for the next 10 years uh, very usefully. So to me, that's kind of the connection. There's a foundation that's presumed and as I tried to make clear in the advertising for this workshop, you know, we're exploring some really pretty deep material here, which I find endlessly applicable as well. You know, in everyday life, uh, when uh, there's a quarrel that's starting to brew, I drop into the sense of wholeness with myself, which immediately helps me feel less irritated or flooded by it. You know, I'm much more able to be um, effective in dealing with it. Wholeness, feeling whole, accepting all of yourself. That's really down to earth. Being in the moment, really useful. Coming into the moment, pulling out of rumination. Coming into the moment, really useful. And feeling uh, more happily connected with everything, including with a sense of kind of gratitude and awe. Really, really helpful. Having a bigger picture perspective. Seeing, recognizing that our planet is this kind of mediocre little chunk of rock twirling around a middling star in a ho-hum galaxy amidst two trillion others. That's what's going on right now. (laughs) 13.8 billion years after the kaboom, the bang. Uh, You know, that's good. And then the timelessness thing is pretty interesting too. Okay, so that's kind of context here. All right, ready to keep on going? All right, chugga chugga. I think this is the Neurodharma Express. Uh, I'm glad you're on board. Okay, allness. So, let's see how I want to do this part. Yeah, I'm going to do it this way. So, surveys show that probably about a third of the people worldwide and given who's in the room, self-selection, maybe half or so of the people in this room, maybe more, at some time in their lives, sometimes with a religious shading of it, coloring of it, sometimes not, have had a radical, unusual experience that has two fundamental features. The sense of personal identity just drops away, while at the same time, there's this kind of joyful, peaceful sense of everything. There's a term for this, self-transcendent experiences. Sometimes they're described as peak experiences, non-dual experiences. There are different details, but if you read the accounts, they have these two fundamental features. 
the ordinary sense of self drops out and it's not a psychotic form of depersonalization, which is pathological, but rather there's this ecstatic uh, intuition of the nature of reality that a person will say feels wonderful. And then as this experience fades, as it usually does, partly so that people can function in ordinary reality, often will come with it deep insight, inner peace, knowings that cannot be put into ordinary language, and yet, as I've read accounts from people, are carried with us forever after. These are really quite common experiences. In more available and frequent and perhaps subtler and briefer forms, people can routinely have a sense of kothunk, connection with everything. And then the ordinary I returns. And then, or in the midst of the ordinary I, operating, doing emails, giving presentations, sitting in a, in a work meeting, as all that's happening, there's more and more of a kind of sense of being distributed, that one's beingness is more distributed out into nature, culture, and reality that's available to people. And in the process of that, the sense of being a beleaguered entity, a beleaguered me or I, tends to relax and fade. And with it, suffering fades as well. few quotations. One from Dogen, the great Zen master, lived in the 1300s essentially in Japan. He says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to perceive oneself in all things. That last line, which is so important, gets translated different ways. To perceive oneself in all things, to be illuminated by all things, to be enlightened by all things, or my favorite, to be lived by all things. We are lived by all things. To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be lived by all things. Beautiful, huh? And how do we do it? Um, So this takes us into the brain. Um, The opening quotation of this whole workshop was from Walt Whitman. Not a woo-woo kind of person at all. I've actually climbed uh, some of the places in Yosemite and in the in the Sierra that he was the first, uh, certainly, uh, white man to climb, perhaps the first human of all. And they're hardcore. Like, yo, dude, what were you doing? <laughs> in those weird boots and everything. He's like climbing up stuff like, whoa. So he was very down to earth and he had that quotation that opened this workshop, right? that we recognize that we're hitched to everything in the universe. Hitched. Uh, So what's going on in the brain when people have these radical self-transcendent experiences or more generally, what's going on in the brain 
when the sense of, I'll call it selfing, intensifies and contracts, and the sense of, you know, you know, me, myself, and I, you, them, you know, increases or decreases. What's going on? What's the natural basis for that? Well, some science here, it's really neat. I'm going to draw on the work especially of a neurologist named a neurology professor, James Austin. Uh, his books are kind of legendary for being thick and demanding. They've gotten narrower and more accessible as he's gotten older, happily. Uh, and he's just really developed some wonderful material about what's actually going on, including in these classic Zen moments of Kensho or Satori, where suddenly everything changes. All right? Um, okay. So I'll do it like this. Naturally, in us and in squirrels and monkeys, the brain oscillates back and forth naturally between two perceptual frameworks. One has the name allocentric. It's more ancient. Things, including visually, are perceived as they are, kind of impersonally. It's about what it is, independent from how does it relate to me. It's just the way it is. It's what it is. It's more ancient because it takes less processing power. You're just updating object of reality without getting complicated about it or personalizing it. Right? And as the visual field extends out, out, the allocentric frame of perceptual processing tends to increase. And here you can notice that as you move the gaze out toward the horizon line and even above it, um, something starts happening in your experience. Probably you'll notice that it feels more impersonal, perhaps more peaceful, and the sense of I tends to diminish. When you bring the gaze in toward you, where friend and foe can really make a difference back in the Stone Age, uh, there is an increased tendency towards self-referential processing. So then we have this other network, which I said is egocentric. Uh, uh, Impersonal is not bad, and egocentric is not bad either. They're just terms for these two ways of perceiving reality, both of which are really important. The egocentric frame of reference, uh, as it implies, is in reference to a particular perspective that's privileged. What's that got to do with me, for better or worse? Threat or opportunity? It tends to be um, action-oriented. What am I going to do? Right? Including uh, manipulating objects in the near visual field. That tends to engage uh, the egocentric network system. The allocentric system is more involved when consciousness is updated. Like we go to the impersonal. When we're surprised, we go to the allocentric view. We need to update the total picture. What's going on in, in the surround, the whole field? Egocentric, rather than just the bare you know, sense of things are what they are, is more involved with where is it and, what, and its relevance to me, its salience to me. Okay, so far? Great. They tend to 
dance with each other. There's an automatic cycling. If you kind of watch your own mind or rewind the last minute, you can recognize there's a rhythm that moves back and forth between, um, uh, you know, what's this got to do with me and things as they are as a whole without privileging any vantage point or point of view about it. And then what's all that got to do with me? There's a normal rhythm that goes back and forth. When something new happens, there's an updating of consciousness. The alerting neural network gets involved. And the allocentric processing stream comes more online. Okay? Then when we become more familiar with what's going on, uh, you know, we then naturally start getting into you know, how can I use it? Or how should I relate to it? Or what should I do about it? Or is it kind of meaningless or worthless and I should move on looking for new opportunities? All right? Back and forth. Underlining a key point I made earlier, the sense of things as a whole, the allocentrism, that perspective, you know, experientially connects with the sense of updating and nowness and alerting which connects experientially with the sense of being whole and undivided. They tend to go together. Much as the sense of being divided, lost in thought, and separated uh, tend to go together. All right? So now Austin has this really useful theory as to what happens when people drop into those non-ordinary self-transcendent experiences and also uh, how we can use that uh, in everyday life. Now, if you're not interested in wholeness, nowness, and allness, there's no point in doing these practices. But if wholeness, nowness, and allness seem to have value, at least strengthening the capacity to go there when you want to, well then it would be useful to develop these practices. So some are, here are some of the things that I'm using this fancy word, allocentrism, that really support a healthy sense of being connected with everything. First of all, a feeling of fullness that needs are met sufficiently. There's uh, enough, yeah, there's enough, in terms of our three basic needs, for safety, satisfaction, and connection. There's enough safety, there's enough satisfaction, and there's enough connection in this moment so I don't have to get caught up in self-referential processing. Fullness. And so we help ourselves be full to and feel full in the moment And as we repeatedly internalize the feeling of equanimity, the feeling of resilient well-being in the moment, uh, I call it the green zone, deep green. As we repeatedly internalize those experiences, we develop them as a kind of background mood inside us. That's our resting state. So as the next moment lands, we feel increasingly grounded in an underlying sense of safety, satisfaction, and connection, or I could say peace, contentment, and love. And the cultivation of that is really, really useful. 
That's a lot of what my book, Hard Barring Happiness, was about. Cultivation of the green zone over time. I had a friend who uh, was a monk in Thailand for nine and a half years. Now he's a massage therapist in North Dakota. So he's a pretty chilled out massage therapist. Anyway, and I asked him once, did you meet anybody who was enlightened? And it's kind of like, you know, did you meet any all-star quarterback? Did you meet anyone who was enlightened? And he said, he laughed. He said, well, in, in that environment, they watch you for years. It's not like you have a white light moment and you get your TV show next week, you know, like in America. Uh, I said, okay, okay, did you meet anyone who was enlightened? He said, well, there were a few people that were considered to be very, very far along. What were they like, I asked. He said, well, first they were engaged. They were busy. They were trying to help things happen. They weren't just sitting on a cushion marinating in bliss. Second, they were, they were always the same. And I went, what do you mean always the same? He said, well, no, okay. Sometimes they were quiet. Sometimes they were jokey. Sometimes they were really easy. Sometimes, you know, they held the line. But in this way, they were always the same. If you were nice to them, they really loved you. If you treated them badly, they really loved you. Their love was unconditional. It wasn't based on conditions. Now, they might set a line. They might call the police. They might make you leave the monastery. They might do a thing. They might demonstrate in the streets uh, politically. But in their heart, they were undisturbed. They retained, they had cultivated a freedom of heart in which they were rested in love as well as contentment and peace, like Deepama toward the end of her life of practice. So there's something really good to cultivate there. And as we cultivate it, it's a lot easier to sustain that kind of open-hearted relatedness to everything rather than contracted, neurotic, driven tension. Also, as our awareness is wide and not hijacked by parts, as we have more of a sense of the wholeness of our consciousness, that tends us to also draw us outwardly into the wholeness of the universe. So there's an analog between the, in, the subjective sense of wholeness and the objective recognition of the universe as a whole, including nature and culture as a whole. The more we cultivate nowness, we're right there with alerting. You know, and as we update consciousness, that tends to stimulate the allocentric perspective. Tranquility, GABA, GABA is a molecule, it's a neurochemical in the brain. It's a primary neurotransmitter. It has usually an inhibitory function. It's calming. If you take GABA, uh, which you can take GABA, you can get it over the counter, be careful. Uh, you know, um, it tends to be, you know, kind of calming and sedating, even, you know, kind of soothing. Uh, and so... As I said, there was a natural rhythm back and forth between allocentric and egocentric view. That rhythm is regulated primarily by little switches in the thalamus, which is a sensory motor switchboard in the brain. They're technically two thalami. These are regions in the subcortex. And there's an ongoing communication between the thalamus and the cerebral cortex, especially the prefrontal regions, that's very involved with maintaining consciousness. Uh, 
and one of the th- ways in which my understanding is, as a psychologist, not a physician, that anesthesia works in certain regards is to, in effect, disrupt the connection uh, between the thalamus and the cerebral cortex so that a person is anesthetized. All right. Well, there are these little switches, and these switches are regulated by GABA, which has an inhibitory function there. So here's James Austin's theory in a nutshell, and then I'll name a couple implications, and we could do a practice together. All right? So his notion, he asked this question, why do most episodes historically of non-dual experiences uh, these self-transcendent Satori, Kensho, and Zen experiences, why do they usually happen? Um, not necessarily in, during periods of formal practice, often after preparation, but often not actually during practice itself. Why do they often involve surprise? Why do they often occur in nature? And why often is, there, is the gaze directed out and even up to the heavens? Why? Why might those be facilitating conditions? Plausibly. So here's his notion kind of summarized by me. All errors are my own, Dr. Austin. For the record, he's kindly reviewed my account. Uh, so he says it's okay. But hopefully I won't mangle it. Here we go. So normally, over the course of a minute, a couple, three times typically, a few times a minute, there's a cycling between the allocentric and egocentric perceptual perspective, frame of reference. By the way, this frame of reference is loaded on our perception of things, but it applies as well to how we um, think about other people and how we frame our life. So, you know, it's to our, it applies to our interior world as well. We can regard our interior world in an allocentric view, uh, within an allocentric view, or we can also regard our interior world egocentrically, Right? So, time, time goes like this, let's say. All right. So, normal cycling. You know, allocentric, egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, allocentric, egocentric. That's the, that's the huge, the norm. And let's suppose that a person trains in tranquility. So, they're training in GABA-related activity, in principle, They train in tranquility, train in relaxation. Maybe they're in environments that are relatively serene. They let go of preoccupations and concerns that are kind of anti-tranquility. They engage one of the seven factors of awakening in Buddhism, which is tranquility. Maybe they engage practices of mindfulness of breathing that include language like tranquilizing the bodily formation, tranquilizing the body, tranquilizing the mental formation, they're cultivating tranquility. So now they're getting a steeper spike in the rhythm of allocentrism. So, right? Let's suppose also they're hanging out in nature, which draws our view to the larger whole inherently. You just notice that, right? You step off the parking lot onto the trail within 10 steps, within 10 seconds. You know, right? Uh, Maybe they're doing that, so they're out, they're out in nature. They're in some place in nature, like here we are in Spirit Rock. Okay, now it's getting steeper, allocentric, steeper. So, okay, now so we have allocentrum, egocentrum, allocentrism, egocentrism, allocentrism, egocentrum. They're rolling along. And then at an allocentric spike in the normal rhythmic, rhythmic cycling, the spikes having been intensified, whoosh, 
there's a surprise. The frog croaks. They come up out of the basement into the sunlight. Uh, The bottom falls out of their bamboo bucket and the moon that was reflected in that bamboo bucket disappears. Or suddenly there's the morning star. Or the frog croaks. Right? Just like that. Catching them at an allocentric peak and then the switch flips. The switch, that Gabba Bay switch that's already been primed by all that tranquility and it gets stuck on, you know, allness. <laughs> and there you are. That's his theory. Now, Jill Bolte-Taylor, in her Stroke of Insight stuff, you know, in her mesmerizing TED Talk, uh, uh, she had a catastrophic stroke that kind of did a lot of that. It's not recommended. <laughs> you know, she basically blew out the left rear region of her brain, which is saturated with verbal activity. Oh, also people train in nonverbal awareness and sensory awareness that's going to heighten those allocentric you know, peaks, right? She blew out the verbal center of the brain. She also blew out the left parietal lobe area that distinguishes between self and world, right? While protecting positive emotion circuitry in her left prefrontal cortex, uh, blowing up sequential processing. Also, when people talk about these timelessness, these uh, self-transcendent experiences, they all talk about radical sense of timelessness, the eternal now. Just no sequentiality. Everything is present right here, right now, eternally. Boom. So, Jill Bolte-Taylor blew out left hemisphere, sequential processing, and she released what's called reciprocal inhibition on the right hemisphere. She's right-handed. It's the seed of the sense of holistic total processing. So no more sequential processing, no more language in Jill Bolte-Taylor. Right hemisphere sense of everything and positive emotion is protected. Whoa, my stroke of insight. How cool is that, right? Now, I'm interested in other ways of achieving that effect, <laughs> uh, which some people factually are exploring uh, psychoactive molecules these days to achieve, uh, to name an obvious truth. Um, in any case, Austin's theory is that something happens at that spike. Boom. It could be the word of a friend, or maybe just something shifts inside. There is a radical change which must involve a radical change in the brain. And he has a plausible theory for that. So what's the takeaway for regular life? I, I kind of list for me the, the big ones up here, including, I want to add one, as we train. As we train. Um, to have a, an openness to surprise and novelty and delight and awe and play. And one of the benefits of that cultivation of playfulness, that don't-know mind, beginner's mind, as they say. One of the benefits of that is that it actually tends to increase neurotrophic factors in the brain that promote connections and learning and are protective in the brain. Playfulness. I think about how many times people are grim and dour and glum and so somber and self-important about their spiritual life and there's a place for playfulness. There's a place for that lightness of being, right? Um, 
which also makes us more open to the kind of surprise that could, you know, cause the apple to fall from the tree of that kind of radical self-transcendent experience. And more generally, in my view, the takeaway is to not overvalue those breakthrough moments, which the great teachers talk about, and to recognize that those kind of radical moments may not come for a person. And for many people, they're actually disturbing. They might lead to a psychotic break if they're not prepared. And they might also lead to, as some people write about it, uh, just a haunting sense of something missing. They had a taste, but then they were expelled from Eden and have been trying to get back for the rest of their life. So it's important to, to lay a foundation of practice that can integrate these kind of breakthrough experiences uh, and, um, and also to integrate these experiences afterward into everyday life and, and as someone who thinks of himself as a plugger, it's kind of my nature of practice, kind of a plugger. Do you know the story of the frogs that fell into the vat of cream? It's a classic teaching story. A bunch of frogs fall into a vat of cream and they're drowning because they can't get out. And they give up one by one. But one frog, I'll refer to this one as Froggy, is a plugger. Froggy keeps treading cream. And eventually, Froggy churns the cream into butter and it solidifies and Froggy's able to leap out to the next level. Go, Froggy. So I tell my wife, they're going to put on my tombstone, still churning. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, um, in everyday life, we can develop more of a kind of ongoing sense, especially in our core, even as we're maybe busy around the edges, we can cultivate more of an ongoing sense of tranquility more and more of an ongoing sense of just really being a local expression in a vast sea of causes. I think of this uh, metaphor for the body-mind process. You are, you are, I am, you are, we all are. The body-mind process moving through reality like an eddy in a stream. That's what we each are. We are each this eddy, this wave, this ripple, moving through the stream of reality. Right? We each are our own eddy. We interact with others, but we are each our own. Right? And we can grow in our felt sense, in an ongoing way, of the truth of things. We can feel what we know. Right? And more and more, when you start experiencing yourself in that way, a um, couple of quotations, uh, uh, Nisargada Maharaj, great non-dual teacher, said, wisdom tells me I am nothing, love tells me I am everything. And between these two banks, the river of my life flows. Or to paraphrase from the Gratitude Hut here at Spirit Rock, just up the road slightly on the left, wonderful place to check out before you leave if you can. Uh, Kalu Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher, from memory to paraphrase it a bit, he says, you live in illusion. There is a reality. When you recognize this, you will realize you are nothing. Realizing that you are nothing You are everything. That is all. 
I love that that is all part. Like, <laughs> but that's it. And we can have more and more of a sense of that even without these wild fireworks of these self-transcendent experiences. Okay, maybe a comment question and then we'll kind of move in the direction of a practice here. Well, people talk about flow as kind of a source of happiness. Do you know, do you know people what I'm talking what? Talk about flow as kind of a source of happiness, kind of like the feeling that you're yeah. completely involved in what you're doing, whether it's rock climbing or writing or creating a piece of art or something like that. How would you relate that flow to the things that you're talking about? Yeah. I, I think that there are a lot of different kind of experiences that are known that sort of overlap each other. And also the way that people talk about them kind of varies depending on culture, right? Uh, I think of flow as, um, and if you read Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's account of it, it overlaps with these really well-described radical self-transcendent experiences, but it's more functional. And there is still a sense of oneself is softer, but it's not so radically different. So that's kind of how I think about it. But I think they overlap each other. And I think, I'm glad you said that, the cultivation of the flow state, and Chick Ben Mihai talks about how to do that, certainly could support us in other ways too. Okay, great. Next person, maybe one more. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yes, generosity. See, right here. Thank you. So you were talking about our visual field, just like what we're perceiving and how that impacts whether or not we're in an allocentric or egocentric view. I heard um, a talk between Sharon Salzberg, and I can't remember who now, but a researcher who was saying that um, there, there's a difference between people who live in places where they can see far and people who live in places where they their field of view is actually restricted by their environment. Oh, interesting. So like people who live in like dense jungles versus people who can see for miles where mm. they live. And that was making me think about like how I live in a city and it drives me crazy that I can't see very far and how yeah. good it feels to get to go up to a high point and see the sky and see yeah. for miles. And I was wondering if that's part of, if, if that relates yeah. to what you were talking about or if it's validated by what you're saying here. I think that's really interesting. I had not heard that, and immediately I'm going to you know, Google that and try to track it down. I'm like, whoa, that's pretty neat. Uh, you know, I'm along those lines, I think about this book I read a while back, Smilla's Sense of Snow. It's a novel written in Danish. It's a beautiful novel, and it was made a medium movie. But she, the main character um, has a lot of background in Green, from Greenland, which is a so-called Danish colony. Uh, they're not going to sell it to <laughs> us. It's not going to... Anyway, uh, and apparently in prisons there, uh, they, their sentences are extremely short because to keep one of the people who live in Greenland indoors in a cage is so intensely horrible for them that like two weeks for them is like 20 years for let's say a typical westerner so they're because they're so used to the sense of sky and spaciousness and everything so you know um, so it could well be true 
I think about practices that we now maybe are beginning to understand kind of why they work, like sky gazing in Tibet. Or I had a teacher talk, use the term the sky of mind, you know, practices of the sky of mind. Uh, you know, and you just think about so much traditional teaching in different traditions. Uh, it's about the heavens, raising, you know, your gaze, really. Kind of cool. Um, good. Okay. Another person comment? So you might ask yourself, what's the takeaway? I think a large-scale takeaway is, wow, this amazing body is playing a role in states of consciousness I care about and am interested in developing more of and dwelling there more and uh, abiding there more. I really care about that. Um, And another takeaway right now is to track the experience. What's the feeling of wholeness? What's the feeling of being in now, in the present? What's the feeling of the objective allness of everything? What's the feeling of that? And can you help yourself rest more or return more frequently to that feeling? Kind of a key takeaway. And then there's some how-tos that we've covered so far. You know, my interest is to offer tools, one tool after another, then find the ones that really speak to you and you like to use. Uh, that's, That's a key takeaway, too. Tools like uh, releasing discontent as much as you can and resting in a sense of fullness instead. Uh, Having a sense of your body as a whole. Uh, Relaxing the need to know or problem solve or fix when when you can. And rest in the sense of the ongoing updating of experience. That's useful. Uh, Tranquility, really useful, especially these days when people, like we live in an anti-tranquil society. Nobody buys anything when they're tranquil, right? Um, So uh, (laughs) tranquility is a kind of cultural disobedience in a sense. Um, Excuse me, Rick? Yeah. I have a question for you. Oh, good. Yay. I've noticed uh, during today's talk that you have threaded throughout references to polyvagal theory by Stephen Porges without actually saying that. Can you talk a little bit about how breathing out slowly, like he talks about, can help increase that sense of relaxation and et cetera, et cetera? Oh, sure. Okay, great. So um, polyvagal theory uh, developed by Stephen Porges who I know personally, and is really a good guy. Um, uh, I think there ought to be a Nobel Prize in psychology or the equivalent, and he ought to get one of them, along with Barbara Fredrickson on positive emotion, John Kabat-Zinn for mindfulness, and uh, certainly other few other people. Um, Dr. Porges has developed um, a body of work related to what's called the vagus nerve complex. So 
And it's actually really useful to know something about it. So I'll kind of quickly summarize it. Essentially, the vagus nerve complex, as, as you well know, uh, has these two branches. One is sort of descending from the brainstem, uh, and then the other is ascending into the, the brain and the face, as well as has other fibers that spread through the body. The original descending branch of the vagus nerve complex is parasympathetic, and it tends to be calming, and it innervates the viscera to regulate them. Okay? The more recently evolved branch, which is uh, particularly in mammals, uh, has more sympathetic nervous system involvement and moves up into the face and gets very involved with our social engagement system. Our capacity to track very subtle uh, prosody, tones of speech, uh, to recognize subtle microexpressions, and to regulate and produce microexpressions ourselves. So we have these two branches. And so to simplify a lot of stuff, because they're connected, we can use one to support the other. So, for example, if we're nervous in our relationships or we're going into a sales meeting or, or a blind date or something like that or into a tricky conversation, deliberately calming the body will help to promote our capacity to engage socially. Flip the other way, if we engage socially in positive ways, ways that feel good, the signals of that, the neural activity of that in the upper branch of the vagus nerve complex will tend to ripple down and help to calm the body and soothe the viscera and even promote long-term health. One pathway probably whereby, as is well known, um, relationships, positive relationships, really promote long-term health outcomes. Okay? Exhaling, as I said, um, engages the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system and slows the heart rate, as I mentioned. So by taking long exhalations, we're going to tend to slow the heart rate. Right? And there are other things as well that I invite you to look into in Stephen's work and... uh, and, and including his recent work on certain kinds of sounds that potentially have a particular beneficial effect, you know, in the brain. So that's my quick summary right there. All right. Okay. Thank you. So I want to leave you with one last little take, summarizing a lot of things that I think are true. The trick is to feel them. Right? So... Subjectively, we can observe that there is consciousness as a whole. There is this moment of experience as a whole. Right? We can see that that's true. And we can recognize that as we move out into the whole of our consciousness, mind as a whole, then the sense of inner division and suffering tends to fall away. And we can recognize that mind as a whole is not a problem. That's pretty straightforward. This is a little more like a koan, but you can get it. And then it'll be gone. Then you can get it again. Um, 
the physical universe. That's what I mean by allness. More exactly, for me, allness of ordinary reality includes both matter and information. The nature of information is immaterial, it's intangible, and yet it still exists. Meaning, signals, instructions, knowledge. Information, as best we know, needs a material substrate to represent it, whether it's the physical air in the room that's representing the sound waves or that through which the sound waves that represent the meanings of my speaking are passing, right? But these are two natural phenomena. Information is a natural phenomena. We don't need to resort to, with respect, I'll say this, angels or God to account for information on a billboard, let's say, or a television screen. Uh, information is a natural phenomenon, as is matter. Okay, Those two together. Those comprise the ordinary, ordinary reality, which also includes a lot of wild stuff that people don't, I sure don't understand, like quarks or cosmic rays or stuff like that. Okay, boom. Ordinary reality as a whole is just one whole. There's only one allness. And allness as allness is much more enduring than any part of it. Just like mind as a whole is much more enduring than any part of it. And the Buddha's quest was to find an enduring basis for the most sublime happiness. And he kept abandoning one vehicle after another that was not enduring. It was conditioned. It was transient. It was impermanent. It was vanishing beneath his feet. So the movement of practice a lot is to disengage from conditioned phenomena that pass away and dwell increasingly in what's effectively unconditioned, like the field of awareness, or even more broadly, mind as a whole. I say effectively because the mind as a whole and ordinary awareness is conditioned by having a human body and so forth, grounded in nature and evolution, da-da. But within that frame, mind as a whole uh, as a whole, uh, it just is. It's, it's enduring in this life, certainly. And thus, identifying with and abiding as mind as a whole is a much more reliable basis for lasting happiness than identification with any part of consciousness, including the part that is the point of view of I, I want to reflect on that. I mean, but it's, you just get it. It's true. Mind as a whole is more stable and reliable than any part of it, any passing phenomenon within it. And so as we track mind as a whole, we're moving in the direction. We're walking in the Buddha's footsteps, seeking that which is ultimately reliable and ultimately unconditioned. Physical reality as a whole, as allness, endures. Allness as allness endures even as galaxies come and go. In three or four billion years, 
the sun will gradually become a red giant. It will gradually expand. It will swallow Mercury and then Venus and then Earth. It probably won't get all the way to Mars, but Mars is going to be really hot for a while. And then the sun will gradually contract and become a white dwarf. All gone. Change happens inside ordinary reality, but ordinary reality as ordinary reality endures. Allness is allness. And you can kind of get a sense of identifying with allness or being allness. And, and there's like a moment where your mind just stops. And it starts again. <laughs> then it's like allness. Wow. Okay? Good. Problems come and go inside the mind, but the mind as a whole is not a problem. Problems come and go inside reality, but reality as a whole is not a problem. And therefore, it's a much more reliable refuge for lasting happiness. Want to do a little practice? Okay. So... I want to say... So I've been practicing... With a, with intent, uh, for forty-five years, and being able to stabilize the sense of mind as a whole is really coming into focus. The sense of allness is is also coming in, but it's not yet fully there. The point is, I think it's okay if certain things take a while to develop. And um, there's this quotation from, uh, I believe, Milarepa, a Tibetan sage, who was describing his life of practice. And he said that, in the beginning, nothing came. In the middle, nothing stayed. In the end, nothing left. And that's the movement, right? Whether applied to a particular thing or to the path of awakening altogether. And uh, it's, it's really, it's okay if you read something and you get it for like three quarters of a second and then it just it's just an idea again. You know, and then the next time it lands for a minute for a second and a half. Right? That's okay. That's um the the process. And this material is like that, in my experience. Okay. So how about a little bit of practice and then we'll finish with the unconditioned. So I invite you to play with this material here uh, for the next few minutes. Coming into a sense of tranquility, tranquil and alert. Rested in the sense of now, letting your body and mind ease. Letting go of ideas, simply being.
On this basis, we're going to be exploring the allocentric perspective. Ways into it are to be aware of this room as a whole, the volume in it, with many bodies and beings in this room. of them special, the room as a whole. If you like, you can Open your eyes and gaze outward toward the horizon line or 10 or 20 feet in front of you. Might gaze upward. aware of how in the sense of the room as a whole and the gaze moving outward and upward there tends to be less sense of I, of me, of self. are known as they are objectively. As you keep supporting this allocentric perspective, letting yourself be tranquil and aware of the room, sky of mind, gaze moving outward and upward. As you support this allocentric perspective, See if you can get a sense as you breathe of breathing in air that is given to you, including by green growing things, oxygen. As you breathe out, 
carbon dioxide for the green growing things. Circle of breathing in which you are part of life. Could be other ways of knowing that you're part of living, part of life. Water that you have drunk that is in your body. The food you've eaten. networks in nature that enable food. Human technologies, the transportation systems, enable the food we eat. Letting the knowing become feeling, feeling of relatedness, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, interbeing. If it's helpful to you, your imagination could extend farther to help yourself have the feeling of interbeing. As you recognize that the oxygen you're breathing, the nitrogen, the carbon dioxide, these elements were forged inside a star billions of years ago. Made inside stars to be breathed by you now and to become part of your own body.
Feeling the knowing that your body is very, very old. The atoms in it are billions of years old. Can you feel that you are a rippling in allness? might be scary to recognize how dependent we each are on so many things. Yet also it can feel almost ecstatically grateful to appreciate how we benefit from so many things. last few minutes, if it's meaningful, you might consider your life as a whole, as a particular eddy, a particular patterning of allness, and reflect on some of the many causes and conditions that came together to make your own life. And endow it with consciousness. It's like the eddy that is you emerged from the stream on the day you were conceived and certainly the day you were born. And it's been rippling forward ever since. Eventually, your eddy will return to allness, to the stream.
your nature has been allness all along. about this point in the meditation for myself, I appreciate two words from, three words actually, from Annie Lamott. Wow. And thank you. If it had been nighttime with clear skies, we could all have just gone outside and looked up. That would have been an even better meditation. But that's the essence of it. Yeah. And it's to feel what we know. Well, well, my hope now is to talk about what, for the Buddha, was the ultimate aim of practice. And I'm going to give it 20 minutes or so. Obviously, we could give it a lifetime. Uh, So, if you think of it, clearly there is mind. We are having experiences. From our experiences, we infer matter, that there's real stuff that we're stubbing our toe against. Maybe that's all there is. Maybe it's not all there is. Maybe there's more to it than that. So how do we relate to this? And this is a topic territory that certainly within Buddhism can become quite controversial, mirroring in some ways the controversies or tensions or arguments and misunderstandings between dedicated agnostics, atheists, and dedicated theists. So I'm going to try to steer clear of those controversies while just honoring the fact that for many, many people, they can't imagine practicing with reference to anything outside ordinary reality. On the other hand, for many, many other people, they can't imagine practicing without reference to something beyond ordinary reality. Uh, And uh, both of them 
interpret the Buddha's teachings according to their own view. And that's where it gets really interesting. So here's a teaching from the Buddha. Uh, and there's a lot of personal statements of his along these lines. I've, my mind has reached the unconditioned. I've attained the destruction of craving. Well, the destruction of craving is a big deal in Buddhism because that's necessary for enlightenment. And it's destruction. It's irrevocable. It doesn't come back. The operational, very psychological definition of enlightenment and certainly the the original teachings of the Buddha is simply a mind that is incapable of greed, hatred, and delusion. And also in which there's just no abiding sense of self. There's a conventional sense of this body-mind, this person needs food or medicine or shelter, but there's not any kind of ordinary egoity in the sense we might conventionally think. All right? So if, you know, it seems like there's a relationship here between unconditioned and destruction of craving. Destruction of craving's a big deal. It's the name, right? The journey is good in the beginning, the middle, and the end, but still the aim is the destruction of craving. What does the unconditioned have to do with it? What is the unconditioned? Technically in Pali, the language of early Buddhism, there are no articles uh, like a or the. So there's no the unconditioned. Um, it makes it sound like a noun. I prefer the awkward term unconditionality because I think that gets more at it as a characteristic of things. Okay. Here's another quotation. The world is the world of our experience. The entire world is in flames. The entire world is going up in smoke. The entire world is burning. The entire world is vibrating, changing, impermanent, transient, compounded. But that which does not vibrate or burn, which is experienced by the noble ones, ones who are awakened, not noble by birth, noble by deed, where death has no entry, in that my mind delights. What does that mean? Does it, can we interpret this? as an experience of some kind, then and death means the ending of experiences. But what, what could that possibly mean? You know, where death has no entry, which means therefore that something new arising has no entry, because that which arises must pass away in the Buddhist view. There must be a death if there's a birth, right? So what's going on here? In that my mind delights. So here clearly is a valuing of this. And the reason I'm teaching this material, which I wish had been taught more to me, uh, you know, in my journey through Buddhism from the get-go, is that it's the ultimate aim of practice, it's deeply interesting, and we can have a taste of it in our life today. We can have a, a taste of the sense of unconditioned. We can have a taste of what our heart knows is true already in which we can delight. Here's another quotation. The born come to be produced, the made, the conditioned, the transient, conjoined with decay and death, a nest of disease perishable, sprung from nutriment, that which feeds things, 
sprung from nutriment and cravings cord, that is not fit to take delight in. The escape from that, the peaceful, beyond reasoning, everlasting, the not born, the unproduced, the sorrowless state that is void of stain, the cessation of states linked to suffering, the stilling of the conditioned bliss. So you can feel the longing in the Buddha's heart, perhaps in your heart as well, for an ultimately reliable, stable basis for the highest happiness. There's insight here that, um, you know, placing our faith in things that are changing and vanishing is not a reliable refuge. And that there's this kind of exaltation and affirmation that there is an ultimate refuge. There is the farthest shore. What is that? How do we understand that? There are two basic ways. Well, I'll say there are three basic ways to understand this, in my view. First, in ordinary practice, we can decondition our own minds. So they're less conditioned by neurotic habits of one kind or another, or coping mechanisms we acquired in our childhood that were useful then but are problematic today. So we can decondition, we can um, disengage from conditioned habits of mind, and we can bring awareness into what is effectively unconditioned, namely the field of awareness, and more broadly, mind as a whole. Because awareness is effectively unconditioned. This sheet of paper is effectively unconditioned in terms of what it could represent. It could represent an infinite variety of patterns, information, and all the rest. Right? It's conditioned because it's manufactured and it's a made object and a bunch of stars had to blow up for the elements in it to be here besides hydrogen and helium. Right? But, you know... Inside the frame, it's effectively unconditioned. It's like, ultimate, unconditioned. It's not the same as, but it's like it. In the same way, awareness is effectively unconditioned because it can represent anything. So the first way to understand this material is deconditioning ourselves and abiding increasingly in what's effectively unconditioned. That seems straightforward, right? That's a way of talking about practice. Down in, down in the trenches practice. Second way to understand this material is that it's referring to an extraordinary state of mind within ordinary reality. Achieved typically through a lifetime of practice and in particular sustained meditative training that moves into the jhanas that constitute wise concentration and moves through them into four even more refined states, the so-called formless jhanas, with names like the base of infinite space, the base of infinite consciousness. What? Uh, you know, the base of nothingness, the, and neither perception nor non-perception, and then cessation. The cessation of ordinary, in any sense, ordinary states of mind. 
on the other side of which is somehow nirvana. That's the classic description in Buddhism. And I've known a number of people who have their feet on the ground, they balance their checkbook, they drive on freeways, they're not wearing robes, who have gone through these traditional trainings, typically in Asia, where they've gone through these form jhanas and then the formless jhanas and cessation and nibbana multiple times. And um, some of them understand that process entirely in natural psychological terms. It's the body. It has nothing to do with supernatural forces like reincarnation or devas or angels, let alone anything transcendental like cosmic consciousness or universal love or, you know, radical unconditionality. Okay? That's the ways. Stephen Batchelor, Lee Brasington, um, Andy Olensky. Uh, interesting that they're all men. You know, maybe that's not just coincidental. I don't know. Please scrub that from the recording. Um, <laughs> you know, okay. You know, they just have a view that we can approach this material in entirely secular terms. There need be no reference whatsoever to anything supernatural or transcendental. Okay. That's a very strongly held view, and it's a way a lot of people practice. Uh, or their view is, look, there might be some something, something or other, but it's not necessary and relevant to full awakening. All right, maybe. Okay. Then there's a third way to relate to this material, which says, in addition to the first two ways, there is something going on here that is, that is beyond ordinary reality. Something that minimally is radically unconditioned and thus distinct from ordinary conditioned reality. Ordinary reality is conditioned. It's deterministic, right? It's conditioned. Possibly, the language here is speaking to something that is meaningfully distinct from ordinary conditioned reality. And which therefore must be essentially eternally um, full of possibility. In other words, just prior to conditioned actuality. Maybe that, and the language of the Buddha is mainly through negation, the unborn, the unailing, the deathless, the undying, um, the uninclined, the unfabricated. I want to name all three possibilities. And it's not because I'm trying to preach the third. It's my personal experience and belief. But to include it, because it is included for many, many people, and arguably that's what the Buddha was pointing to. So what are the takeaways? One is, what's your own interest in the ultimate process of your own practice? You know, if you could have the deepest longing in your heart fulfilled in this life, what would that be in terms of your own personal realization or development? Wish for yourself. Maybe it, in part for the sake of others. We practice for them too. But what, what's your aspiration? What's your longing? And how alive is that longing for you? How much do you honor it and take it seriously and want to protect it? 
Make room for it. Dust it off periodically. Nourish it. You know, the Buddha's clear longing, as he said, was for the, that highest happiness, which is peace, and that irrevocable uh, liberation from suffering. That's a takeaway. Another takeaway is that, is it meaningful for you, for your practice to include supernatural and even transcendental elements? If it is, what do you want to do about that? If it's not, what do you want to do about that? Because it's a pretty radical distinction either way. You know, in terms of how we practice. Not what we believe, but how we practice. What do we take into account in our practice? What's our, what's our practice about? How do, we, how do we relate to it? That's a, that's a key takeaway. Another takeaway, which is sort of the best of both worlds, because it allows for the possibility of the third, while staying grounded in the second, and the first and second, is to look for those aspects of ordinary life that feel unconditioned. The sense of possibility just before speaking. The wonderful openness on a sheet of paper. Maybe terrifying to a writer, but also wonderful openness. Uh, To get a sense of the space, the unconditioned, effectively unconditioned space of awareness through which patterns and forms move. The unconditioned space between thoughts and experiences. Getting a sense of that. Spaciousness. Possibility. And the feeling of not yet being bound to a particular view or implicated in a particular reaction. That's a good takeaway too. And then, um, the last thing I just want to leave you with is a quotation from Hakuin, Zen practitioner hundreds of years ago. This was his pith instruction. And it's where I I hope we can kind of rest and and, uh, end the workshop and continue our practice. You know, he says, basically, recognize your own nature. Recognize your nature. And in the process of that, become Buddha. Like, what is that? So, the last takeaway for me is to open to the sense of the underlying ground of your being, however you experience that or conceive of that. And in my view, the underlying ground of our being inside ordinary reality is pretty good. It's naturally wakeful and rested and at ease because that's the equilibrium condition, that's the resting state of an animal including a big complicated one like us. And you can just recognize in your own mind that when you're undisturbed and when there's not a sense of something missing, there's no want, no craving, um, then you tend to be naturally pretty loving, pretty happy, pretty peaceful, pretty good to hang out with. So being aware of one's own deep nature, what's your intuition? And meditation is a really nice practice for that because the 
as I said in the very beginning, and that the mind is like a pond, the sediments settle out, the mud and dirt, debris and the toxins settle out, and the water is clear, and the jewels that were always there can be revealed, to use a Tibetan metaphor. And so that's the last takeaway here that I would just suggest to really explore. What's your true nature? And if for you, your sense of true nature extends in some ways into the transcendental, you know, be open to that. I hope this has been helpful. And uh, I've really appreciated your sincerity of practice. And I'll um, just finish with a little story here that, again, for me is really down to earth. It's that um, while we are guided by our sense of the heights, even if at the time we're down on the dusty plains, we still have to walk our path in the dusty plains. The Buddha's last words, things fall apart, things are impermanent, uh, unreliable, tread the path with care. Uh, we all have our own path to walk. Right? And to me, it's useful to bring in the inspiration and aspiration that's in this material today. At least for me. It's been really, really useful to do that and to have my practice be about more than being aware and nice. Now, being aware and nice is a lot better than not, right? But there's more to practice and there's definitely more to Buddhist practice than that. And um, so the teaching story here briefly is from Joseph Goldstein. Uh, I think of him with high respect as a kind of no-nonsense, East Coast-style teacher. And I was, did a little workshop with him one time many years ago. And he was actually teaching about not-self, relaxing the sense of self. And I was having certain experiences, and I wanted to know if I was on the right track, you know, moving in the right direction. And that's good to get that confirmed, that you're in the right place. And he, he said, yeah, that's it. That's right. Then he smiled and said, two words, never forgotten, and I'll leave with you. He smiled and said, keep going. Thank you very much. Take good care. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.